The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Okay, Mr. Dubin, good to see you again, sir. Mr. Rogan. Always, always a pleasure. Introduce your friend. This is my uh, my friend, my client, my brother, Sheldon Johnson. Uh, I figured we'd do something a little bit different. Um, typically, the person sitting to my right is someone that was wrongfully convicted. So I don't want to bury the headline. Sheldon is guilty. Um, and I thought it would be a real interesting conversation to learn his uh, background, learn about his upbringing, learn about the crime that he committed, and hear the sentence he got, which um, I don't want to shade it and uh, inject my opinion. I have a strong one, but it's uh, pretty astounding how... He was treated by the system. I think that there's a real interesting twist that happens at his sentencing. And um, I know I've said this before, and it probably sounds repetitive, but another miracle sitting to my right, just like a a marvelous human being who was basically told by a judge, um, by an African-American judge, that you don't matter, you don't count, and I'm going to throw your life away for a crime in which the victim received two stitches and um, on a second offense, his first offense being a gun possession charge. So I will say this, that he received a sentence that far eclipses a sentence um, that would be commonly doled out for murder or manslaughter. So with that, here's Sheldon. Sheldon, how long have you been out for? Um, going on nine months. I got out uh, May 4th. And year, you were in for 25? 25 years and five months. <sighs> for two time. stitches. Two stitches. Jeez. But one, one of the things that always struck me about Sheldon um, was I didn't know him. And I got a call from these two remarkable attorneys at an organization called the Center for Appellate Litigation, Barbara Zolot and Allison Haupt, who had been working on his case for a long time. And they called uh, me and Derek Hamilton and said, you know, we know you're working on some stuff with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. We have this case that is sort of hit a snag. I want you to take a look at it and um, see if you could help us. And I called Barbara back and said, I think, I think that there's a mistake here because it says that he was sentenced to 50 years. Um, I mean, that's no bullshit. I could not believe what I was reading. And then I read about what Sheldon had accomplished while in prison. Um, and then his earliest date of release was, I think, 20, 2049. And he had already served 25 years. So... Um, I was just blown away by the um, level of accomplishment and the mental wherewithal that he possessed to accomplish what he did while incarcerated. And then the path he's taken in the eight months since he's been out, 
is um, it's it's uh, we talk about on these episodes how do you make change happen? He's living it and making it happen. So I th- thought it would be just fascinating to go through, um, like I said, his life, um, how he got to where he was, why he got this, what his thoughts are and our thoughts are on the sentence he received, why that happens too often to people of color. Um, and I know there's one thing I want to say, and then I'm going to shut up and really let Sheldon talk and you talk. Um, I, get a, I get this a lot. Why are you always bringing up race? When you talk about the system, and um, my my response to that is, if you don't talk about how it impacts the system, even for people that have been found guilty, um, it's like um, it's like having a conversation about President Biden and ignoring the very obvious apparent cognitive deficiencies he has. It would be like talking about Donald Trump and not recognizing that he seems like an unhinged lunatic. It would be like talking about Kamala Harris and ignoring that she you know, didn't do much to advance criminal justice reform. You have to confront it. It's just, it's there. Um, is it that all people that get wrongfully convicted are people of color? No, but most of them. Is it that all people of color get disparate sentences? Oh, Absolutely. Um, so that's why I thought that this is an important conversation to have. And getting to know Sheldon, just thought he uh, he has a remarkable story to tell and a perspective on on his circumstances, the system. And he's someone that's taken responsibility for what he did and I think is a living example of what can happen if we think long and hard about um, if someone's life is worth just throwing away and putting behind uh, bars so that they can rot in a dank cell because he would have been 70 years old when he got out way past his life expectancy. You know, one of the things that's happened through all of our conversations that we've had on the show is it, it highlights how insanely broken the criminal justice system is and how little oversight there is. And how few people are looking at these individual cases and that you can have one judge who does what they did to you. And no one's looking. No one cares. No one pays attention. And until someone like you goes in and starts combing over this and then coming up with a strategy for, you know, to actually apply real justice or at least get someone out i mean the only way to apply real justice is to have a fucking time machine right but it's broken i mean it's it's so broken and it seems so overwhelmed and the root cause of it is never addressed the root cause of i mean i've said it ad nauseum but i'll say it again where the fuck did we come up with a hundred and whatever billion dollars to send to Ukraine and we don't have any money to to try to do something about these insanely impoverished crime-ridden gang-ridden drug-ridden communities we don't do anything we have nothing I mean this is my my take on this whole make America great again thing you want to make America great again make it so there's less losers make it so that more people have a fucking chance the idea that everyone starts on the same line. I mean, I'm not talking about 
equality of outcome. That's not possible. But equality of opportunity is possible. That's a possible goal. And at least we could advance that. At least we could do something to you know, just, just change the course of who knows how many people's lives. And we don't do a fucking thing about it. I mean, we're looking at each other because we just had we just like had lunch before we came. It's like the precise conversation that we had. Um, I told you this is a motherfucker that gets it. Oh, I know. It just makes no sense to me. It, it makes no sense to me, and it's not a subject of any presidential debates. It's not a subject of anybody who's running for Congress or running for Senate. We have to fix this. This is a problem that's been going on for decades and decades, back through Jim Crow, back all the way to slavery, the same same communities, and we don't do anything? It, it, Pull it, that a little closer. Redlining, everything. Pull that mic up a little bit. Yeah, just, just yeah, it's good. That's good? Yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it's wild. It really is wild. And, you know, and the race part of it is a major factor. It's a major factor. And it's a factor that gets ignored when people start talking about racism, systemic racism in the country. Talk about sentencing. How come that's not talked about? Yeah, well, that's a vestige of... This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. There's a famous quote from Abraham Lincoln that I'm pretty sure most of us know. Good things come to those who wait. But did you know that's only part of the quote? The full thing is actually good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. And I have to say, our former president was right. When you really want something, you have to work for it. Whether you want to get your business off the ground, you want to get in shape, you want to start a relationship, it takes effort. If you want the best people for your company, the same applies. And thankfully, ZipRecruiter can help put the hustle in your hiring. And even better, you can try it for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan. They can find top talent for your role fast. As soon as you post a job, ZipRecruiter's matching technology will go to work, and you'll immediately start seeing qualified candidates. So let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle that you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Rogan. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Look, it's important to take care of yourself, and it's equally important that you use the right products like Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural soaps and more with no harmful ingredients, so you can look and smell your best. Try their pine tar bar soap and lotion, bay rum deodorant, or woodland pine cologne. Most of their scents are available across multiple products, so if you really like it, you can get a whole lineup. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash J-R-E or use the code J-R-E at checkout. That's a vestige of slavery, yep. segregation. Um, Jim Crow, redlining, everything. Exercising your right to a jury trial yep. and being punished twice. Um, yeah, um, it's it's hard to know where to pick up because we just had this conversation um but you're you know look well let, let's preface the 
the episode by saying this. We are doing something about it. I keep telling you that this this forum it keeps paying dividends. We are we are making progress. We are opening people's minds. I'm getting letters from prosecutors. I'm getting letters from sheriffs. I got a letter from a, a, a sheriff in, in Oregon last week, and he sent me a, um, a badge and said, I want to show you how committed I am to trying to make change happen. And it was from this show. So we're doing it. We're addressing it. We're making it happen. Why politicians don't, um, I, I, you know, what drives someone to want to get into politics these days is for a different psychiatrist. <laughs> no, no fucking, I have no right. clue what the allure is, but you know, like there's such a swirl of uh, ego and power struggle and divided loyalties. I can't even wrap my head around it, but um, you know, we're doing it. We're helping. We got to do it, uh, grain of sand by grain of sand, until we have a sandcastle. So that's what we're doing. So I do think we're making a difference. But you know, it's crazy because Sheldon and I are the same exact age. Um, and we didn't know that until we were on our way Born down. Born days apart. Yep. And he he flew when we flew down. It was the first time he'd ever been on an airplane. Wow. What was that like? <laughs> Fucking weird, right? Nah, it was. It was. I, I actually loved it. I was. I was very excited. I'm kind of like an adrenaline. I like the adrenaline rush. Just the the speed of it, and just the whole idea of just. You know, I I, uh, I had this analogy in my head when I was up in the clouds, and I'm looking down, and I said to myself, I said, I just came from the bowels of hell, spending 25 years in prison, and now I'm in the sky above the clouds in the heavens, headed to a destination to um, talk about change and to talk about all of the things that brought me to this place today, and you know, the conditions in which I grew up and, you know, how social conditions play a role in the decisions that we make or the lack of achievements or opportunities, like Joe just said a couple of minutes ago. You know, um, those opportunities are very important and being able to start that line where everybody is not necessarily equitable, but, you know, everybody has that same opportunity. You have a chance. You have a chance. Yeah. A real chance. Well, so tell us about your upbringing. Upbringing. So, I'm a coda. My mother's deaf. My father's deaf. My sister's deaf. My aunt is deaf. I grew up in a deaf household. What's a coda? A coda is a child of deaf adults. So, That's crazy. This is the second podcast in a row I'm doing with someone who's like that. Yeah. Mo- Moshe Kasher, who was on yesterday, his parents are deaf. Mm-hmm. He signs, and yeah. you know, he's he's he had to translate for his mother his his whole life. Same with me. So as a child growing up, uh, my mother's also white. My grandmother came to America in 1918 from a boat from Sicily. Um, my father is Nigerian. He's African. So there was this always this contrast where, you know, I wasn't really sure where I belonged. at. you know, um, kids are cruel. So growing up, um, you know, kids would say, "Oh, you're a mulatto. You're a half breed." And, oh, you're adopted. And for a long time, I kind of suffered as a child with an identity crisis, not really knowing where I fell at on either side, what my identity was, who I was supposed to be. Um, And and my father, I'm also uh, a product of intergenerational incarceration. My father was incarcerated when I was young at an early age. Um, He did about 15 years. Um, I was incarcerated. 
my grandfather was incarcerated, my great-grandfather was a slave, and my son um, killed somebody when he was 12 years old. Um, so that there, there's this cycle of, of, of incarceration based on the conditions, the social conditions, and where I come from. I grew up in um, New York City, Harlem, on the borderline between the east side and the west side on Fifth Avenue. You hear Fifth Avenue, you're like, oh, wow, you live in a nice place. Okay. Um, crack era <laughs> Harlem, 80s, 90s. Mm. Um, you know, and I grew up, you know, uh, uh, protecting my mother, interpreting for my mother. My mother could hardly ever keep a job because of her handicap. There was always somebody that would replace her. Um, a lot of people saw my mother as a victim. She was a white woman in on 112th Street in Lenox Avenue, an all-black community. Um, so as a child, I grew up protecting my mother. So I never really, I feel like in hindsight, I didn't really have an opportunity to be a child. I had to grow up and be a man early in my life in order to be able to protect my mother. And a lot of people didn't even know that my that that I was that I could hear. So there were times where I would be standing there with my mother and like people would just be making all type uh, all type of random comments and just disrespectful, you know, just hateful stuff and I would sit there as a kid just kind of like looking up like like dude, I can like hear you. Um So, you know, um I think uh my life took a significant turn and um when I was in the 5th grade I was always pretty smart, but, you know, as, as being smart and growing up in these neighborhoods, you know, the, the school systems are not really equipped to handle the, the number of children that's coming through. So you have one teacher and, like, 30 kids. Um, and me just being who I was, I was always pretty smart. And when I was finished with my work, I would kind of just clown around. I had this teacher um, in the fifth grade, my math teacher, and what he would do was he, when you— acted out in the classroom. He would call you to the front of the classroom. He had a stack of rulers. Today he would be arrested um, back then, but it was back then it was permissible. It was considered as, you know, just punishing kids. And, um, and he would call you to the front of the classroom. He would make you stick out your hand. And he would put salt. He had a big salt shaker that he kept on his desk. And he would sprinkle salt in your palm. And he would smack the ruler into your hand. And the salt would kind of embed itself into your palm and would kind of have like a little burning sensation. So um, one day I decided that I was tired of it. And he called me to the front of the classroom, and I put my hand out. And when he swung, I moved my hand. And he almost fell over. He chased me around the classroom. I ran out into the hallway. Um, he chased me into the hallway. I grabbed the fire extinguisher off the wall, and I sprayed him until he <laughs> fell. <laughs> that was my reaction, too. I was like, he's telling he like was he cursing. And, oh, man. Um, but long story short, uh. I sat in the back of the police car for three hours as they determined my fate as a 10-year-old. Put me in handcuffs and everything. Um, and I had, a, I had a counselor at that time. And I guess she convinced them to send me to a hospital. So they sent me to Mount Sinai Hospital, um, psychiatric unit. And I remember them sticking me with a needle. Uh, Thorazine. 10-year-old kid, man. Just, you know, just... Jesus Christ. In a straitjacket being escorted to a hospital. And they stick me with a needle. Um, and so for months from Mount Sinai, I went to Metropolitan um, and I attempted to escape from Metropolitan and they sent me to um, a more secure area. What's Metropolitan? Metropolitan um, Hospital. It's also a psych so ward. Why did they send you to a psych ward for that? I guess they, they you know, I, I was considered as a 
young black kid who's out of control with behavioral issues. And, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly the gist of the conversation that took place. But um, from what I've gathered now in the future is that my mother felt that she would rather see me in a hospital than to see me in a jail. Because it was either that or they told her that they were going to send me to Spofford. So I went through that um, just being uh, subject to just a whole bunch of different medications. Melaril, Haldor, Lithium, Cogitin. Um, and then they transferred me to Pleasantville. Um, from Pleasantville, I went to Hawthorne. And, you know, and I'm going to be honest, this is where I learned how to become a criminal. Because prior to that, I was just a kid. They put me in this place where, you know, I was around older kids and these kids were really like about that life. There was stuff, there was really bad stuff happening. If you look up Hawthorne Cedar Knolls to this day, it's been closed for allegations of, of sex trafficking and child abuse. Just just so, because we know it because we're from New York, but those are juvenile detention They're like group facilities. homes, yeah, they're like juvenile detention uh, facilities. Um, so they considered me as a person, uh, they put what they called a pin on you, and it's a person of interest, uh, a person in need of, of assistance. And they put you in these places, and they just kind of just leave you there. Um, so I finally got out of there. I went through a lot there. Um, I was molested by a counselor, um, and I finally escaped from there. And I just went back into the streets at 13 years old. And I just was fending for myself. I was out in the street. So it was three years of that? Three years of that. For one instance where a guy's trying to hit you with a fucking roar. Yes. Wow. And, you know, I always look back and I see that as a trajectory in my life that just changed everything. I went from, you know, it, it changed me as a person. I lost my innocence. I felt like after I, after I left that place, I was a darker person. Um because of the things that I saw and the things that I went through. Um, so I come back, and we're talking about this is 1988. Crack era Harlem. You know, you got kids 13, 14 years old making $1,000 every two, three days. Selling drugs, looking out on the corners. This was like real stuff. You see New Jack City. New Jack City was for real back the then. The people who grew up. After that, do not understand pre-crack and post-crack. Oh, yeah. Big difference. It was wild. Devastated my community. It was wild. And how the fuck did that happen? Like, how the fuck did that happen? (laughs) When you go through the whole story of it, and you go through, like... I mean, come on, man. Like, I had Freeway Ricky Ross on here twice. Uh There you go. I ain't got to say it. He said it. So last night, (laughs) we were talking about this. And we were talking about, like, what do we want to accomplish today? And last night when we were uh, talking, he uh, he's like, well, you know the CIA brought crack into – I said, you might want to stay away from that, but here we are. The so. fuck out of staying away from that, man. <laughs> My friend Michael Rupert, rest in peace, uh, he was the guy who stood in front of the city council on television and exposed it. He was a former Los Angeles narcotics officer. Mm-hmm. And he said, I personally witnessed the CIA selling drugs in the inner cities of Los Angeles. And that was the freeway Ricky Ross situation where they were using that money to fund the Contras versus the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. It's, it's really not um, as crazy because last night Sheldon's telling me about it. And uh, I spent a long night 
into the early morning hours reading some of what you told me to read. It's really not. It's really not in dispute that it happened. Not in dispute at all. And and what was what what well, I'm gonna let Sheldon tell. What 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 blew me away about it was that not only um, was it known how addictive it was, it was also known how easy it was to reproduce the process and how much cheaper it became. Yeah. Not only that, the difference is in sentencing. The difference is in sentencing. That's one to five. the wildest thing. Yeah. One to five is like a... One to five ratio. Yeah. And then you had the Nelson, uh, the Rockefeller drug uh, uh, laws that came into effect that required mandatory minimums and, and et cetera, et cetera. So when we talk about social conditions and we talk about um, situations that were created for the purpose of what? You know, they separated... You know, you separated families. You had mothers who, and really grandmothers who had to take care of the children because the mothers were in the streets smoking crack and the fathers were either in the streets using drugs, selling drugs, or in prison with astronomical sentences and removed from the family structure in totality because of these conditions. So now you have the child just kind of left to fend for itself. And we're not even talking about the children who were born that were subject to uh, mothers who, you know, the the crack baby, right? Um, yeah. And that's just, it's just, I mean, the list just goes on and on when we talk about social conditions and we talk about the, the long-term effects of, of these conditions and how it produces behavior. Like Ivan Pavlov, one of my favorite uh, psychologists, he talks about stimulus and a response, right? A classical condition, and so you introduce the uh, the stimulus, and then you have a, a response, which le- equals to the condition that we see. And um, and you're also talking about what we were talking about earlier. You're still dealing with these communities that are still suffering from segregation, Jim Crow, yeah. and then they throw crack in it, like just gasoline on a fire. Yeah. It, it's crazy because we've had this conversation in the abstract. We've had this conversation, you know, about this very subject and then the more i got to know sheldon and his story i said well here was someone that not only lived it um and and i want to make clear one thing that um has always struck me about sheldon is his vulnerability but also his honesty he's like i'll be the first to tell you out of the gate i did it i i could have made better choices he's not asking for a pass based on his conditions. What he's always said to me was, I just want people to consider how it may have impacted me. So, and to me, you just can't ignore it. It doesn't say, well, poor Sheldon. Um, I, th- I think that because I guess, you know, I know him, the human being. So I, I like, I trip out when people are like, anybody that, uh, uh, murderers or robs or doesn't lock them up and throw away the key i always feel like well well, look why don't you explain to me how you have gotten to know somebody that has been brought up in different conditions than you were how long have you sat and listened to them how long have you considered how that might have impacted them and compared it to the conditions you grew up in how many people like him have you gotten to know? So again, I'm, I'm trying to walk a fine line between sounding preachy and, and just saying, let's just consider um, the circumstances in which he was born. We're both 48. Um, 
I don't want to get into, you know, my, my family, you know, struggled financially, but had different opportunities. Um, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a knock around Brooklyn guy that did what he could do to, you know, provide for his family and wasn't always great at it, but he was a wonderful man. But I, I can't ignore that I had different opportunities, um, than Sheldon did. So when he gets out and then he arrives back on the street, you know, I don't think anyone's going to argue with the fact that you're impacted and molded from 10 to 13 and forward, 13 to 18, by who are the people you're around? What are the conditions you're born in? And I never even went back to school after that. So I'm talking about after the fifth grade, I went back to school maybe for a week when I was 17 to um, Washington Irving High School. I went to school for a week and I just dropped back out. I just saw no purpose in going to school. Um, and I really didn't go back to school and really educate myself until I went to prison. Today I'm pursuing a master's in human services. Before we get to your master's, why don't you explain So you get back at 13? So I get back into my community at 13 and I'm just kind of, not only am I, not only am I like kind trying to uh, wean myself from all of the narcotics that have been pumped into me for these last three years. I'm talking about I, I gained so much weight. I went from a slim kid to being fat because of the medications that they was giving So me. what are they giving you? In- um, they were giving me Haldor, lithium, Thorazine, Melaril, um, another, and another medication called Cogentin. Those are the ones that I'm aware of. And I'm talking about I was just like heavily sedated, just... And that's what they do to all the kids. And that's what they did to most of the kids, yeah. They just want to keep them calm and quiet. Just keep them calm and quiet. Keep them calm and quiet. Um, Are they giving you any counseling when you're in there? Are they mm talking? This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Look, it's important to take care of yourself, and it's equally important that you use the right products like Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural soaps and more with no harmful ingredients, so you can look and smell your best. Try their pine tar bar soap and lotion, bay rum deodorant, or woodland pine cologne. Most of their scents are available across multiple products, so if you really like it, you can get a whole lineup. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash J-R-E or use the code J-R-E at checkout. Have you ever checked into a vacation rental and wondered if the host planted a hidden camera in the house? Well, if you use their Wi-Fi, guess what? Your privacy was already at risk. Because Wi-Fi owners can see everything you do online, even if you use incognito mode. Now, I'm not saying that every host is trying to spy on you, but why take that risk at all? With ExpressVPN, you don't have to. It's an app that reroutes all your online activity through secure encrypted servers so no one can see what you get up to on their Wi-Fi. And that goes for vacation rentals, hotels, airports, or anywhere you want your online activity to stay private. Plus, now that any kid with 20 bucks worth of hardware can jack your bank logins and credit cards over public Wi-Fi, I think it's important to be extra careful. 
ExpressVPN is an easy way to make sure they don't steal your information. There's a reason why ExpressVPN consistently is a top-rated VPN by tech review sites like CNET and The Verge. It's fast, it's easy to use, and it works on all your devices. Phone, laptop, iPad, everything. Just tap one button and ExpressVPN does the rest. Best of all, you can take advantage of my special link right now, and you will get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. Just go to expressvpn.com slash Rogan. That's expressvpn.com slash Rogan. It's superficial. It's, it's not really, it's not, you know, you got a bunch of kids who sit around in a group, and, you know, they do a feelings check, but the counselors really... The counselors, as far as I was concerned, the counselors didn't really care because they there was, out. there was, yeah, there was so much going. The counselors was just there for a check. There was so much going on that were that was above and beyond what the counselors could control. It was just ridiculous. You had the kids going down into uh, white plains, breaking into cars, stealing, getting high, going across the campus, having sex with the girls. It was just insane what was going on. And I, and I, you know, I learned how to become this person. I learned how to survive there. I learned, you know, what it meant to go and steal a Benzie box. Remember the Benzie boxes where you could snatch them right out the car? People mm-hmm. used to hide them. I learned how to, you know, break into a car with the older guys and how to take a Benzie box and sell it. So I learned how to survive there. I mean, I, I've always known how to survive superficially, but from, from, I just feel like at that point I was put into a place where instead of getting real therapy or real help, I was just kind of put into a place and I was I was like I was malleable. You know, I was I was young, I was impressionable, and this is what I was seeing. These became my role models. These were the guys that, that I respected, that I looked up to. Um they, you know, they were selling drugs, they didn't have a care in the world, they had all of the girls. And, 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 you know, and ironically, prison in my community was almost like a rite of passage, right? In my community, when you went to prison and you came back and you didn't you didn't tell on nobody and you were able to hold it down, you know, and, and, and word got back to the streets that you, you didn't get robbed or, you know, you didn't get punked. People looked at you differently, treated you differently. I remember when I was 15 years old, um, I wanted to go to Rikers Island so bad that I lied to the officer. I got arrested for smoking. I got arrested for smoking weed. Weed is legal now. But back then, like, weed was a thing. Like, if they saw you smoking weed, that gave them justification to get out, stop you, take you down to the precinct, run you for warrants and all kind of other stuff. You sat in the bullpens for three, four days before you even got out. Um, And I remember lying to the officer. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 16 because I wanted to go to Rikers Island so that I could come back and be around the older guys and tell them, hey, listen, I went, I still got my sneakers, you know, and, 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 the, and the girls, and everybody just treated you different. And, and it's really sad, but that was a reality um, that I was faced with. So I come back, I'm 13, and I'm going through this stuff. My mother's still struggling. Um, she's on SSD, which is Social Security for Disability. My father's in prison. Um, and it's just, I just, I started selling drugs. Guy offered me an opportunity to be a lookout. He said, listen, kid, I just need you. I'm going to give you $75 a day. I just need you to stand on that corner. And when you see the police car, just yell, oh, shit, oh, shit. That was like a little thing. 
And I would just stand there, and eventually I just slowly moved up the ranks, and I and I became this person that I feel like I was never meant to be, but because of the conditions and because of where I was at and because of what I saw, what I was exposed to, um, made me into someone else. It turned me into 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 this person that I was never meant to be, and I just you know just when you're in these these these. When you're in this melting pot of just insanity, you 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 know you lose sense of what's um, what's permissible and what's not, and what's impermissible, right? You know, I'm committing crimes, and it just doesn't even matter no more. Um, I was never the guy to you know to hurt any old people. My era, you know, when you seen old people come through, you helped them with their bags, and we had respect for our elders. That was something that was always taught to us. Um, now these kids, it's, it's just that's a whole nother story. Um, but yeah, I'm just and I'm committing and I'm getting arrested for little stupid crimes, driving without a license, um, standing on the corner, little small petty drug cases, um, and I'm just I'm just kind of just moving through my life with no purpose. But I'm providing for my family. My mother doesn't, you know, at the end of the month, we don't have to worry about just eating grits and cheese no more. You know, we can eat chicken and Velveeta shells and cheese, you know, and, and, and for some people that's significant. You know, I can buy a couch now. I can buy a real couch that, that, that's comfortable. I can buy a TV for my mother. I can, you know, set up her cable to where she can watch HBO. All of these little small things that I wasn't able to do that she couldn't really do for herself after she paid the rent um, was significant. And it made me feel like, um, I had a purpose. It made me feel like a man. When in all actuality, you know, many of the values and the morals that I adopted growing up were just so warped and so misplaced. Like Scarface, the movie, right? You know, you have this, oh, I don't work, I don't break my balls and my word for nobody, right? You know, and I remember one time a friend of mine, he came to pick me up, and he was on a run from the cops. He had a warrant out for his arrest. He had a car full of drugs and a car full of guns. And because I gave him my word... I felt like I couldn't back out of the situation. Nothing bad happened, but it's just the idea of sometimes growing up and, and adopting these values and these morals, and you begin you begin to take them on as part of your characteristics, and you just you just make you end up making really really bad decisions that can cost you for the rest of your life. Like my son, like when my son when he when he got into a he got into a fight with an Asian guy. They called him the Columbia Law Student Killer, right? Um, he gets into a fight with this Chinese guy, and um, this is not to take away anything from that man's family. And, you know, as a man, as his father, I felt some type of way. Um, but the guy goes into the street and gets hit by a car, and he dies. But this is how fast your life can change from just one simple mistake, from one mistake. Um, and I just feel like, you know, a lot of times these conditions are, 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 are created and, and there's really no... There's no alternatives. I had never been on a plane, like Josh said. Like I never even thought about going on a plane. Um, so I'm growing up in this community. Um, my father's gone. My mother's, you know, she's deaf. I ended up having a son. My son was born in 1993, and um, that just made things. That just exacerbated the issue, right? So now I'm really, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, I have a son, I have someone to look at. And despite how many times I said that I was never going to be who my father was, 
my actions were actually setting me up to be exactly who my father was and remove me from my son's life. Um, and in 19, I caught the gun charge that, uh, that, that, that triggered the felony that it allowed them to be able to sentence me the way that they did in 1994. Um, I also caught another case. At that time, I was, I was, I was what you call um, giving out consignment on drugs. Um, two people in particular I gave consignment to, and I ended up getting arrested for a case. Um, and when I sent someone to go pick up the money from them, they kind of just was like, you know, eh, whatever, I'm not paying them. So when I came home, um, one guy in particular, I ran into him with his girlfriend. He Did you get five. that case got dismissed, right? The gun charge? No, the one that you were away for. You got arrested for something. Mm -hmm. You're in jail. Yes. These guys figure since you're in jail, fuck it, we're not going to pay him. Yeah, I'm not going to pay and him. And then the case that you were arrested for got dismissed. Got dismissed. Right. I got so then you So then you come home. So then I come home and, you know, I need my money. I, I need my money. I'm just, just, it's just me being honest. It's just me being straight. You know, I gave you something and we had an understanding that you were going to pay me. And when I came home, when I finally located this particular individual, he had his girlfriend with him. Um, and this guy owed me $5,000 for some drugs that I had gave him on consignment. I gave him an eighth of, uh, eighth of a kilo, which is 125 grams of cocaine. Um, and when I saw him, he had a bunch of jewelry on. He was with his girlfriend. She had a bunch of jewelry on. And I said, hey, man, where's my money at? Oh, yo, I was going to pay you. And as far as I was concerned, his jury was, we was even. So I robbed him. And I took his jury. And his girlfriend happened to be there. And um, unfortunately, she got caught up in the situation. I had a bunch of young guys with me. And they robbed her as well. And he got hit in the head with the gun right here on the side of his head. And he got two stitches. And they gave me 25 years for that case. Did you hit him in the head? No. One of the guys that I was with hit him in the head. Um, and he identified me in a photo array, unbeknownst to me. He identified me in a photo array. Um, this guy, you know, as far as I was concerned, he was in the streets just like I was. So right. I didn't really understand that, you know. Like I said, we go back to morals and values and principles and how warped they can be, right? right? In my mind at the time, this is a guy who I gave something to. He's living an illegal life. I'm living an illegal life. So as far as I was concerned at that time, it was fair game. In right. hindsight, as I, as I moved on and I became more mature and I began to reevaluate myself, I realized how wrong that was. But that was later on. At this time, I committed the crime and I just kept moving. Another guy that I ran into, he also owed me some money. He owed me $7,000, and it kind of went along the same ways. He was selling drugs out of an auto parts store. He was a Spanish guy. Um, I got word that this is where he was at, and he was selling drugs, and I was going to get my money. And the same circumstances kind of ensued. Saw him, hey, what's going on? You know, um, reading in between the lines and outside the margins without really going into all of the details, I robbed him because he owed me $7,000. Did he get physically hurt? No. He didn't get touched. Got roughed up a little bit, but 
There was no physical, there was no physical harm, nothing. Um, going back to morals and values and principles, right? In my mind, he was fair game. He's selling drugs, I'm selling drugs, you owe me money, I came to take what you have. In that world, that was considered as permissible. These are one of the rules of something that was permissible. In that world, um, long story short, um, in December 1997, I get arrested for both cases, really for one of them, for the uh, one with the guy and the girl. Um, and then the other case drops with the auto parts store, the guy that I said they were selling drugs out of the auto parts store. Um, I am in the process of going to court. I'm going back and forth to court. I'm on Rikers Island at the time. It's just crazy on Rikers Island. Um, that's when the gangs was involved. Uh, prior to that, a year before that, I had got involved with the gangs. I was I was blood. I was a gang member. This is where the cut comes from on my face. I have a bunch of stab marks from just being in those environments and being on Rikers Island and just... Um, warring with other f uh, rival gangs, uh, mostly Latin Kings and Inetas. Um My final offer before trial was 23 years, which kind of blew me away because my lawyer kept telling me that my maximum sentence was 25 years if I went to trial. So in my mind, I, I, it just didn't make no sense to me. Why would I forfeit my rights to an appeal if there's only a two-year difference? Um, I told the judge I would take 15 years right now. I acknowledged that I had that I had made some mistakes and I had done some things that that were wrong. And I said I'll take 15 years right now. He refused to uh, accept my plea offer, and I went to trial, and then I ended up getting 50 years, five zero. And um, so they give you 25 for each case. Is that 25 what it was? for each case, consecutive. Um, so, and I remember, um, I remember like blowing trial and just not really understanding like what was being there, but not like, it was like almost surreal. And I remember when I went and got sentenced and the judge said 50 years. Now, mind you, I, I, I had a black lawyer, a black judge and a white prosecutor. Um, and I remember when he said 50 years. He said oh, he went into all of these um, reasons why he was sentencing me the way that he was sentencing me. Um, there was never no post. Uh, there was never no. Uh, uh, they're supposed to do a report prior to your sentencing, and it's called a post supervision interview. Um, pre sentencing investigation is called the PSI pre-sentencing investigation. There was never no pre-sentencing investigation. There was never no mitigating evidence presented on my behalf to, you know, highlight why I may have made some of the decisions that I made. Um, and he just called me a menace to society and he just, he gave me 50 years. And I remember when I, um, when I first got to Downstate, which is a processing facility, and they give you what they call is a time computation sheet. And on the time computation sheet, it gives you all of the numbers, like, the beginning of your bid, how much jail time you have. Um, and I just remember 2049. That's all I kept looking at. And I was like, 2049? Are they fucking serious? This is 1998, 1999. 
And I'm trying to do the math, and I'm just like, 2049. I'm like, that's 50 years from now. And I remember going to the law library, and um, I forget how I get the World Almanac. And something just says, look up the life expectancy. And I look up my life expectancy. And as an African-American man, my life expectancy at that time was 67 years old. And I did the math. And I said, I'm going to die in prison, man. I just really believed that I was going to die in prison. Um, one thing I learned really, really quickly when I got to prison was that prison does two things to you. It brings out the best or it brings out the worst. And what I saw was I saw individuals who were at their worst and I saw guys who were at their best. Um, the guys who were at their best were guys who were involved in education, post-secondary education programs. They were running the program. They was running the violence groups. They was running the substance abuse groups. Um, and I remember saying to myself, I want that. And I remember just being involved in so much bullshit because I was in a gang and um, I was I was I was top of the food chain. I had my own nation. I wasn't just like the random gang member. I had a whole nation under me. Um, and I was just in and out the box, in and out the box, solitary confinement, which has been considered as unconstitutional now. Um, and I remember just having these moments of reflection and just asking myself, like, what are you gonna do? Can you spend the next 48 years living like this? And I said, I couldn't do it. And I, um, I had lost all my privileges. They took everything from me. I was in Southport at the time, which is closed now. Uh, it's a solitary confinement facility in New York State. And um, I was on a loaf, which is also unconstitutional now. So the loaf is a, a dietary restriction that they give you. It's a chunk of bread, and it has cabbage and carrots in it, and they give you like a quarter of a cabbage, and they give you a cup of milk. When they can't take any more of your privileges, this is what they would give you. Six days out the week, on the seventh day, you would get a hot meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then it would go back for 21 days. They would do this six and one, six and one, six and one. And it was at that moment where I, I really said, I have to change my life. I have to change my life. I, can't, I, I just can't do this. Um, I had a wife. I had family still. My son was growing up. Um, he was hearing stories about my so-called uh, notoriety, and um, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to be that dad. Like I really was looking at myself and really evaluating and asking myself, like, "Yo, what the fuck are you doing?" I was still. I was smoking a lot of weed at the time. I was drinking um, jailhouse hooch, um, and I was at my worst. And I and I had to real I had to figure out how to get to my best, so I decided to when I got out of solitary confinement, um, I did forty two days on the loaf. I, lo I went from two being two hundred and ten pounds to like one sixty eight in like a matter of seven months. Deflated me, um, and when I got out, I made a decision that I was going to walk away, and I didn't care about what the consequences was. And I said to myself, I've been doing bad for so long. I'm going to try to do something good. If all else fails, I could always go back to doing bad. But let me try. 
Let me give it a shot. Um, and I ended up getting into school program. I got my GED. Um, I left the gangs alone, which was a benefit for them because, you know, I was what you call an authoritarian. I was a rule guy. I'm, I'm still a rule guy. I like rules. You know, I like rules. I like structure. I like things to be a certain way. Um, and it was to their advantage to get rid of me anyway. Plus, I knew a lot of the guys who were at the top. Why was it to their advantage to get rid of you? Because I was the type of person who would say, you doing that for what reason? Nah, you can't do that. The rule says that you can't do this, you can't do this. This is what the rules say. And I the was- The rules of the prison or the rules, the rules of the streets? Of the, gang, the, the rules, rules of the, the streets. Yeah, there was rules. Give it's, us a for instance. Okay, so for instance, uh, I could be in a whole nother facility. Let's say I'm in Greenhaven and a guy's in Attica and they want to do something to him because they feel like he's not sharing his proceeds of drugs that he's bringing into the facility. The rules say you can't do that. That's his property, that's his belongings. So I was a rule guy and they just, you know, it was to their advantage to get me out of the way. So when I decided to take a step back, they were like, yes. And it was to my advantage as well. Um, and this was in 2005. So there was no resistance? None. And at that time, this is where a lot of the uh, what they call set tripping began. Uh, the, the the organization began to implode on itself. The it gang a, organization. The gang organization. There was a lot of infighting, sets against sets, and I was just always against that. Um, and it was time for me to go, and I, I didn't care whatever the consequences was. I was fortunate that there weren't any consequences, um, but I didn't care what the consequences was. I just walked away. And then that begins your journey. This begins my journey. I got into school. I got my GED. Um, from there, I got involved in um, correspondence courses. I started interacting with guys who were teaching ART, aggression replacement training. And I started to begin to understand how these concepts work, what positive visualization is, um, deep breathing, how to remove yourself, conflict resolution, all of these ideas of, of change began to take place with me. Um, substance abuse, I stopped smoking weed, I stopped smoking cigarettes. I was smoking like 30 cigarettes a day. I, I mean, I'm literally having chest pains from smoking cigarettes. And I realized that I wanted to live. And the only way that I was gonna be able to live and walk out of prison was to remove myself from these substances. I had seen so many guys get carried out. I see guys dying. Not just from just being stabbed or with altercations from officers. I seen guys dying from one, one guy I knew. He used to drink so much hoop, hooch. His his liver failed on him one night. He died in the cell that night. The morning when they came to do that count, he was frozen. He was stiff as a log. But these are the things that I was seeing, and I and I really I was really in a situation where I had to ask myself, Do I want to go out like that? And I didn't want to go out like that. Tell me about Jailhouse Hooch. How are they making that? <laughs> so it's a bunch of ways they could make it. Um, you could use fruit juice, or but a lot of guys use tomato paste. Tomato paste, water, and sugar. You need a kicker, which is like a, what they call a, um, like a mash. You would call it a mash. They call it a kicker. 
get a plastic bag, you put it in a plastic bag, you let it blow up, it goes through the process, the carbon dioxide process. I did a whole, I did a whole paper on uh, ethanol when I was in Cornell so that I could learn how the process was. Um, and it's pretty good stuff, if, especially if you distill it. But it's bad for you because it has, it has a component in it called methane, and it goes straight to your brain. But, like, you know, in the streets when distillation uh, places or facilities, they distill it, they remove that part of the alcohol, the methane. But in prison, guys just drink it. It's just like, you know, give a fuck. Or you make the fruit juice. Same thing, plastic bags, sugar, um, kicker, mash. What is the kicker? The kicker is to accelerate the process. I know, I know, but what does it consist of? Usually, like, spoiled fruit, uh, some spoiled bread with mold on it because it, it, it begins the process of fermentation. It's like a mash. So yeah. this shit's got to be super toxic for you. Oh, super fucking toxic. <laughs> Dudes is dropping like flies, man. Oh. Like he, flies. Here's the... Uh, when, when you hear, like, going forward, what... How Sheldon changed his life and... Um, Not just the correspondence courses, but um, all of these various counseling programs, outreach programs, um, his connections to the outside world, which he'll talk about, is that the the uh, impossibly sick, fucking twisted, imp- horrifically sad irony to all of this is that it took prison to save him. And why couldn't he be saved as a kid? That's what what, what, um, I am really trying to sort of put energy towards now. When you asked him earlier, wasn't there counseling in the group home? And, you know... If you see what this counseling is like, obviously I can't cast aspersions on every counselor in a group home across America, but, you know, I've had people on, on you know, the podcast with me, and I'm listening to their anger management classes, right? I won't mention who it is, but I'm listening to, like, the anger management class that they take. And it's fucking, it's on Zoom. It's run by a guy that can't, fucking turn his camera on and it's like it is um it's it's bedlam there's just people screaming hey man i can't i can't hear you what the fuck did you just say what you hear not just the anger and the frustration but the guy's inability to control the situation to control the technology let alone giving out um you know Real advice. Real advice and constructive feedback on how different people are. He's checking a box, this guy, to do a job. Is that happening with everyone? It's not happening with everyone. But but again, the the um, just the the paradox here is that this this insane, inhumane sentence um, actually saved Shelton. Um, But why aren't weren't there those programs that thought? that um, 
implementation in his community to save him as a kid. Right. Right? And um, I don't just take cases. You know, at the Perlmutter Center, um, where I'm the executive director of the Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice at Cardozo Law School, we get a massive amount of mail. Um, and we get a lot of people calling us to help out on cases. I want to help as many people as we can, but people that I think can succeed or that we could help succeed when they get out. And, you know, on paper, um, you can see pretty quickly what somebody has done with their time. You know, I've sat with people in institutions all over the country where I say, well, what programs are you in? And I feel like an idiot asking because I'd be a fucking puddle on the floor. If I, I asked him many times, how often did you cry? How did you extract yourself from the gang? How did you sleep at night with the, with the noise? Uh, Sheldon told me about this thing called a human harpoon that people make out of magazines and a sharpened toothbrush. Like, can you, can you fucking, the mind fuck on this, you, they, they stiffen um, the pages of a magazine with toothpaste, soap, water, let it dry, let it dry, so that they could basically work it into a rod. You keep on working the paper between your hands, and then you attach with soap newspaper, a sharpened toothbrush handle or at bone. the end of it. Or what? Or a bone. Or a bone from a, something that they ate in the mess hall. that you ate in the mess hall. And then you're walking past their cell, and you're... All of a sudden, you get fucking stabbed with a harpoon. So I'm thinking... Or, throw, or have feces thrown on you. So I'm trying to like process all of that. Um, and to be able to navigate that hell and come out to this half, halfway, <laughs> halfway sane, and and I'm just I I'm you know I'm so it like it hurts me deep in my fucking guts to hear that I'm hearing you talk and then I'm thinking this is what it, it took to save you um, when I, I think about. You know, he was 10 years old. My son's 11. And that, um, it's, it's hard to listen to. And, yeah, it's hard to process that you were able to have that wherewithal to sit a day in solitary confinement, let alone 42 days. Um, and so your process, when you decide that you're going to try to do good, like, what? How difficult was the process of trying to it was lonely. establish an education? Um, this episode is brought to you by Hostage Tape. First of all, what a great name. Um, this, is a, this is a product that I use, and I started using long before it was an ad. Your sleep game is about to get a whole lot better, kids, because I want to introduce you to Hostage Tape. Put simply, it is tape for your mouth. But you're probably wondering why you should even need that. Well, if you're a mouth breather, if you snore a lot, or if you suffer from sleep apnea, this could make a big difference. This mouth tape can reduce or eliminate snoring and apnea, and at the same time, it'll help filter the air going to your lungs, increase your oxygen uptake, and improve circulation. 
which will make you feel more energized. It has tons of other benefits, too, like it helps with bad breath, dry mouth, and, of course, better sleep. For you and your partner, don't let bad sleep hold you hostage. Shut your fucking mouth with hostage tape. Buy it today and get a special buy two, get one free offer. That's a 90-day supply. Just visit hostagetape.com slash Rogan. That's hostagetape.com slash Rogan. It was lonely. Uh, I had, you know, on one side I had the guys who I used to run with saying, the fuck is he doing? And then I had the guys who were actually doing good just watching me to see if I was going to crumble or fail. Or, or you know, you had a handful of guys that, that, that committed to me and said, yo, I applaud you, you know, I got you, man. If you need some help, I can help you do this or I can help you do that. But, you know, it, I just I felt like everybody in the world was watching, including my family, because they didn't believe it. Up until the point to where I graduated from Cornell, my cousin told me, she said, she said, you know, when you called me and invited me to the graduation, she said, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe nothing you had told me prior for the last 10 years or anything that you said you did until I saw you at that graduation. So, you know, I had family. I had everybody just kind of just waiting for me to fail. Um, but I just felt like I was just determined to succeed. I just had this. I just had this this energy in my spirit, and I just and it was the it was the it was the will to live. As far as I'm concerned, it was the will to live. I, I had read when I was in solitary confinement. I read Victor Frankl's uh, "Man's Search for Meaning," and one of the things that 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 struck me as being so powerful, he says, "If you have a why, then you have a reason to to live." And this is a guy who was in a concentration camp during the Holocaust, and he found a reason to live. He found a reason, and, I, and, I, and I'm sitting there in, in the cell, and I'm asking myself, do you have a fucking reason to live? Um, you know, and I think about my family, and and that was my reason. And I, and I, and I wanted to beat the system. And that was my way of beating the system. I'm not going to let you motherfuckers kill me. And that was my spirit. And I know it was only one way for me to accomplish that. So like I said, I started going to school. I did the correspondence courses. I got um, involved in the Cornell Prison Education Program. I obtained my associate's degree. And then I went on to obtain my, uh, my, beha- uh, my bachelor's in behavioral science for Mercy. And, but it, you know, in, in this process, I'm you know I'm I'm going through, I'm mentoring other young men. You know, now guys are looking at me and saying, "Hold on, wait a minute, man. This this guy is is onto something." I got guys on both sides now saying, "Yo, can you help me?" Um, I started working in the law library. I I discovered that I had a knack for complicated things, case law, and I was helping guys, and I was actually helping guys get out of prison. Um, and I started running the programs, and so I think what, that's what, something. What, pro, what programs? Did so you run? I ran aggression replacement training. And how many years in did you start doing this? Um, about nine years in, eight years in. I got arrested in nineteen ninety-seven, and about two thousand five. This is when I started to make my transitions. About eight years in. 
Um, and it felt good. It felt good. It felt good to be able to call my family and send them pictures and invite them to these events where they can actually see me change. They could see actual tangible change. It felt good to, to for the guys that I knew that were coming to me and asking me for help. I was helping guys with their GEDs. I was I became a tutor in the program. Um and the rewards that I felt, you know, it it didn't even matter anymore about when I was gonna get out, right? It was just now about how can I help other people not go through what I went through and wait so long because I feel like I wish I had somebody that would have came along at a, at a at a earlier stage and like he said, don't wait till I fall, catch me before I fall. And that's part of my motto now and some of the work that we do um, at the Queens Defenders, the alternatives to incarceration. And this is why I'm so passionate about a lot of the work that I do now. Um, I'm trying to catch these kids before they fall. I don't want to wait till they're falling. Um, and I want to show them the way. And I, and I feel like I'm a credible messenger because when they see me, they know that I came from the same place they come from. Like, like, like Josh was saying earlier, right? There's a difference between being qualified and certified, right? You could read 100 books about drug, uh, drug abuse, but how qualified are you to really tell somebody who's sick on heroin and they're ready to do anything that they can for a bag of dope? of what you went through, you, you can't. And, and, and this, this experience is, is priceless. This you is, said it way better than I did. Certified versus qualified. And that's why, you know, I'm just sitting back watching um, the work that Sheldon is doing now. He's, uh, what, what's your official title at the Queens Defenders? Client advocate and um, we just created the, the Yelp. We titled it uh, Yelp, uh, me and two other brothers that I was incarcerated with formerly, Bruce Bryant and Rashad Rouhani. Um, we're client advocates. We run a youth emergent leadership program, and we work directly with the district attorneys and the judges at the courts um, dealing with the alternative to incarceration program. A lot of the young kids that catch the gun charges, we bring them into our program Um we help them with job readiness, training, whether it's OSHA training. We help them get their GEDs. Um, we direct them to different programs. Like we got a, a program called Hood Coding. And this is also a guy who's previously incarcerated. And he teach coding. He teaches coding to younger kids inside the inner cities in the projects. Like coding as in computer coding? Like computer coding. He teaches coding. And, and we, we get them into our program. We help them with their resumes. Because one of the main things we realize is that outside of everything else, a lot of these kids, they, they're, they're impoverished. They don't have nothing. You know, so we want to be able to try to help them with some type of employment, right? That's number one. And then we take them through our program. We have a 36-week, 10-point program. It deals with conflict resolution. Um, it deals with uh, knowing your rights, how to have a conversation with an officer. Uh, one of the things that I that I take pride in while I was incarcerated, I was also in the theater program. Uh, I played Macbeth um, on a stage. Um, 
I also was on the debate team. We debated against Stanford, Harvard, and Yale on the topic of the future of automation, and we crushed them. But one of the things I learned in those, in those arenas is critical thinking and critical analysis, right? How do you critically think about a situation? And also looking back, I realized something about myself is that I did not have a term that I coined called situational cognizance, right? As a kid, for some reason, I felt like I was not able to see the long-term consequences of my behavior. It was like a wall there. And I think, I think a lot of these younger kids are also suffering from the same thing. They don't. And the system sets you up to, to, to the system tricks you because you, you, you catch these cases and what they do is they slap you on a wrist, right? You catch this gun charge and they say, oh, no, we're just going to give you six months. Don't worry about it. What they don't tell you is that gun charge is, is a pretext now to enhance your sentence when you catch another case. So it's almost like a form of entrapment, right? And a lot of these kids don't understand that. They think that these cases that they're catching are just going to disappear. They don't realize that there's a paper trail being established that's being created. There's a profile being created against you. And when you reach a certain threshold... There's a term that I like to say, they're going to knock your fucking head off. And you're going to find yourself, a lot of these kids find themselves in situations where they get 25 years for an assault. You remember uh, Scared Straight? Yeah. All right. Um, I think the effectiveness of Scared Straight was because of the messenger. So you're seeing the change right now. Um, and this is not meant to... to you know, blow sunshine up your ass because you get plenty of that and you deserve it. But it's it's to I w- I was in like a situation last time I was here where I felt a little bit hopeless, and now I'm I'm more I'm trending toward more hopeful because Bruce Bryan, who was on the show, is a client advocate at the Queens Defenders, and um, I don't wear that as a feather in my cap. That was just me. Um, it was validation that if I get behind this man and give him new life, um, do my part in it. Lord knows there were others. Steve Zeidman at CUNY Law School, um, you know. Um, and if it wasn't for, in all honesty, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm adamant about to this day, if it wasn't for Josh and Allison Hop actually going to, uh, uh, and, and Derek as well, Derek Hamilton, speaking to the district attorney, like we were at a plateau where they just didn't, they just was like, nah. But, but I don't want it to be about me at all. Here's what I wanted to say, is that you now are seeing the connections. Um, and so, you know, legal aid was representing Bruce. There was a, an army of people. So, that all believed that he could make change happen and do positive things when he got out. So now he's a client advocate of the Queens Defenders doing this kind of work, um, trying to explain to judges, this person, don't let them be another Sheldon Johnson. Don't let them be another me or Derek Hamilton. They deserve counseling. They deserve a second chance. They deserve to help really be rehabilitated. Um, And then... Sheldon comes over and starts working at the Queen Defender, Queen's Defenders, which is the, it's like the, um, you know, the appointed counsel for people that can't afford an attorney. 
they're criminal defense lawyers. So to watch them out there advocating and trying to change, you know, hearts and minds about the community, you have to be on the ground doing it and getting in front of people. And I, I know I said it before, um, look at the, you know, I'm very thoughtful in who I bring with me. Look at this beautiful mind and how he articulates himself and educated himself. And you want to tell me uh, that this couldn't have happened earlier? Um, he doesn't need anyone's sympathy, and he's not asking for it. It's something I admire quite a bit about him. Whenever anybody, you know, he doesn't want poor Sheldon. You know, how, how could you have gone through this? And he stops them. I've seen him do it right in their tracks. Listen, I did what I just don't know that my life was worth throwing away. Um, but to watch them now on the other side of it, the change that we talked about that I'm like, how do we change it? How do we do it? It's starting to happen. Could we use um, Jeff Bezos to sit down and, and think through how we can build a community center in East New York, in Harlem? Yeah, we could. The, the means are out there to do it. All it takes is one person listening to this episode um, that tells someone, that knows someone, and then you know progress is starting to happen and we can just do it on the ground. But the reason why I mentioned Scared Straight is because, sure, I could go in there and talk to these kids. They're not going to fucking listen to me. Just not. I I might be um, certified, but I'm not qualified. Right. But I didn't. I didn't. I can't. I could sympathize, but I can't empathize. You know, I go through that talking sometimes, like you know, to fighters that I manage. Right. I do it with Shakur Stevenson. You know, he's like a little brother to me. I love him. Sometimes I feel like he, he, you know, the message might be better coming from Jay Prince than it is for me because he's more qualified. I try to wrap my head around what Shakur went through as a kid and growing up in Newark and the circumstance. But, he, you know, I think that there is a disconnect and I have to be big enough to recognize that um, and say, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not the right person, but, you know, telling me he's not going to inspire and they're doing it they're getting judges to change their mind they're getting prosecutors to think twice we just got one guy he um he shot at his brother without going into the details of his case he has attempted murder charge and um we now have him on our program they originally were talking about giving him 15 years He's been in our program for a couple of months. We we set him up. We help him get his resume. He's he's working towards his GED, and he's in the hood coding program. Um, we also have him in an aggression replacement training program. And now the district attorney is considering giving him five years probation. So they went from 15 years, and this kid is doing amazing. Like, he's just picking up the coding the guy that I spoke to, he, he said that this this kid is just, he's like a sponge. He's just soaking it up so fast. But this is just one example of how we kind of level the playing field and create opportunities. I think that key you spoke, that word you spoke about earlier is, is so crucial to the context of this conversation. Opportunities, right? How do we create the opportunities for these kids to be able to provide? Living in New York City ain't no joke, man. 
the cost of living is 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 ridiculous. Um, so how do we create these opportunities? How do we? So now also what we're doing is we go into the schools. We talking to the teachers. We talking to the teachers and the principals, and we asking them. We're not even going to wait till you get to the courtroom. We're asking the teachers and the principals, who in your classroom do you think needs help? Which kids in your classroom are the most giving you the most trouble? And they give us the names, and we go and we talk to them, and we try we're getting them involved in our program. Um, but it's all about opportunity. And well, kids sometimes need to see someone. Not not, not sometimes, always need to see someone who's done something from a similar situation. Yeah. Where they realize, like, there's a path out of this. Because if you don't see a path out of this, you just see a path towards doing what the other people in your environment are doing. And that's how all human beings react. If you're in a bad environment with a bad group of human beings, the chances of you going down that same path are extraordinary. Learn behavior. Yes. And from someone like you, they can see this is not a given. There's a way to do this. There's a way to get out of this. And there's a guy who's already gone the wrong way who could say, you know what? I figured it out and I'm going to help you. And the difference between someone like you saying it versus some uninspired counselor is massive. It's massive. And it speaks to you and your character that you want to do this, that you've dedicated yourself to doing this. That's where real change comes from. That's that's where real help comes from. Real help comes from someone, as you said, who's qualified to do it. Comes from the same place that you came from and that you can identify because I, being able to identify is 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 a critical component. Like you said, like you know, this this is is this someone who can identify, empathize with what I'm going through, where I'm at right now in my life. Um, like a lot of the young kids, they're 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 involved in 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 the gangs, um, and we have this 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 reculturalization program, right? Um, where we're trying to teach them because in, in many of our communities, the gangs have become a part of the culture. Like you, you have parents who are gang members, you got the kids who are in communities, and 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 it's just it's it's just saturated with gang culture language dress music food everything else so we're trying to extract them out of these places and say okay these this is something that you can do differently we're taking them to different places we're taking them to hbcu so that they can see what people who look like them look like when they're going to college this can be you this is some of the Take them into classrooms to meet with the professors. Uh, we have a, a financial literacy course where Chase Bank actually works with us, and we teach them how to establish credit, how to open up a checking account, how to open up a savings account. And at the end of that particular uh, five-week program, we actually take them to the bank and we give them $25 so that they can open up their own bank account, so that they can understand the difference between the money that you obtain from the streets and the money that you get working legitimately is two different kinds of money. You can't appreciate the money that you get from the streets. But that money that you've been working all week for, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week at the end of the weekend, you can see that direct deposit when it goes into your account. You can take that card and you can actually utilize it to to withdraw your money out the bank. That's a big difference. Civic engagement. You know, how, how, how can some of these kids feel like they have a voice 
in their communities when they're not making no decisions in their communities. We go into the rallies. We take them to the rallies out of Albany. Um, yesterday they went to a rally. Last week we went to a rally about treatment, not jails. How to uh, set up what they call um, diversion courts for people who have substance abuse problems. Instead of sending them to prison, they need treatment. And the money that they save is clear. It's clear. When you do the math, the money that you save, it, the, it, it costs almost up to $70,000 to incarcerate one person. But then there's the issue of privatized prisons. Oh, that's, it, oh, that's Which is insane. That's disturbing. It's so disturbing. That They're using human disturbing. beings as batteries to generate money. That's what it's like. Yeah, we're trying to... We're trying to um, take the charge out of their battery. We're trying to pull mm-hmm. the plug out of the wall because, you know, this is these aren't controversial statistics, and I'm not going to start spewing them, but we incarcerate at a rate that is um, dwarfs any other Western country, um, any other civilized, any, anywhere in the world, really. Anywhere in the world. So in any event, I was you know doing a relative comparison so how do we put those privatized prisons out of business? You know, we have to start, you know, on the ground. And for, you know, it's almost like a a, a rallying cry to myself because we get a lot of, um, not a rallying cry to myself, but um, the way I got from being a little less intimidated by the mountain to climb was taking a step back really after the last episode and saying, well, what have we done and how have we changed things? Listen, I wasn't born a civil rights lawyer that was working on innocence cases. I have a a trial strategy company called DRC. We do focus groups, mock trials on big cases, right? Try to unfold the thinking um, of jurors in a jurisdiction where the case is going to be tried. Then we make demonstrative aids and we are alleged experts in jury selection. And that became a platform. I said, how can we use this as a platform now that I'm operating the Perlmutter Center as well? So just being in the boxing industry, um, speaking to the Jay-Z's team at Rock Nation and Jay-Z and his mom, how can we do this? And we, he has something called the Sean Carter Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's a remarkable, it flies way under the radar. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. All right. Do you know what it does? Not exactly. All right. So it's kind of, um, it, it, it's kind of remarkable that people know it because of his name and they've heard it, but no one really knows like what it does. They take children from, really from the, all over the country, a lot of them are in the tri-state area that have difficult circumstances. A lot of them come from single-family households, and they—they—they are um, not, not just mentoring them from high school, um, but they are trying to do some of the things that Sheldon talked about. They do a college tour. Um, it's run by a woman named Danya Diaz um, and um, really Gloria Carter and a woman named Miss Archer. And I, I saw what they were doing, and I said, if we took these kids and created a fellowship program where we pay their last year of college, and five of them do it every summer and work on wrongful conviction cases at my consulting firm at DRC, and also are a resource to my students 
who are taking an internship for the Perlmutter Center and are working on wrongful conviction cases and have them start a social media campaign. They spearheaded the free Bruce Bryant social media campaign. And watching this program, these kids, if they're given the opportunity, three of them now work for me full time. One of them is the mail intake coordinator at the Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. So she is receiving mail from inmates and helping screen which cases we might want to investigate. Um, her name is Samelia McFarland. There's an old girl that works at my firm uh, doing advertising um, and uh, publicity. Her name is Jalen Madry. She she made a presentation to me the other day. I was f- fucking blown away that this girl was she was passionate about marketing, not advertising, marketing. Um, and she works at my consulting firm. And she made a presentation to me, you know that it had a level of detail and ideas about how we can become, you know, increase our awareness. And I, I was just thinking to myself, you know, all right, so this is the change that we're making happen. And um, it was just an idea that I had. I didn't actually think um, that Jay-Z and his mom and Donya would go for it. So I was reluctant to pitch them the idea and just being able to say, well, what do you have to lose by, you know, putting it out there? And they have been remarkably supportive. Um, so I think that, like, there's a lot of people that want to help. Yeah. You know, Sheldon and I were talking about it before we came, and we all we often think, like, how can listeners help? There is not, if you have an idea like I had, just try to put the next foot in front of the foot that's behind you. And just keep walking forward and don't be afraid to ask. There is not a a public defender's office in this country. There is not a civic engagement organization that if you call them and say, I want to volunteer or I'm interested in helping, that will turn you away. You just have to say, all right, I could sit here and talk about it um, and, you know. Until it happens to you. Right, you know, we talk about uh, uh, not to cut you off, right? No, just, I, I need I, I need to cut off. Right? You talk about like the, remember the opioid crisis, right? You know, it's been an opioid crisis in my community since I can remember. People were dying off heroin, and it didn't become an issue until it was affecting white America, right? But my thing is, had you dealt with it from the beginning, it would have never became a situation later on. So it's this idea where people, we have a tendency to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to turn away and I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm going to turn a blind eye. I'm going to act like it doesn't exist until it hits home. And then sometime when it hits home, it's too late. Yeah, like I, I think it takes like um, something to happen to somebody for them to become an advocate, right? Michael Jay Fox wasn't a Parkinson's advocate until it happened for her. But that's great that he decided to Absolutely. do that. Remarkable. But I think that Sheldon makes a great point, right? Um, we're a society of um, – we're a society that likes to sit back um, and, and complain. We want to react <laughs> instead of responding. Like one of my f- favorite things to do is um, – I like I have severe anxiety about dying and uh but for whatever reason maybe this balances me out at an airport when a flight gets canceled 
even if it's hopefully my flight, not hopefully, but <laughs> I get a better view of it if it's my flight, to watch people stand up and, and you know, get frustrated, berate, uh, raise their voice at, at the fucking ticket attendant. I, I, it's, it's a remarkable exercise and it's a social experiment, I think, that if people really like were able to hover over the room and watch themselves, they'd be like, why, why am I yelling at the ticket attendant? There's only two real possibilities of, of why this plane is not going to fly on time. There's either a mechanical problem or weather. Do you want to fly in either of those situations? Um, you know, and to watch people um, just like, you know, complain and they get, I don't know what they're getting out of it, but I, I just find myself le- trying to, A, be a, have an awareness about myself not to do that. And rather than get intimidated by the problem, try to just keep putting one foot in front of another. Um, and then when the flight gets canceled, maybe I could read something interesting and catch up. It's inconvenient or come up with an idea. I mean, trust me, I'm an average guy of average intelligence that just I think I have like more tenacity. So I don't if I can help make some of this stuff happen, other people can make it happen. And I, I Sheldon asked me, should I go to law school? before we came here and I said I can't I I changed my mind by the way I might have an opinion now but I told them like most of the lawyers that I find that are most effective aren't the smartest Um, they're not um, the savviest they possess something that most lawyers don't which is common sense and street smarts and they marry that with what they learned in school and they're able to sort of that perfect stew I think is what leads to a successful advocate counselor attorney whatever you are and oftentimes there's so much of an emphasis placed on your grades and what score did you get and how much of that really ends up fucking mattering at the end of the day it matters but does it matter to the degree to the degree we place an emphasis on it in our society I'm not sure, but my my whole thing is rather than like be intimidated by the problem, I think it it's recognizing that it exists. Just decide one discrete thing you want to do to try to help make a change happen, and then you know again just try to get some forward momentum, and you'd be surprised at, at the buy-in that you get. Um, I think that that's why this platform is so important because it it allows people to start sharing ideas reaching out to us and we're taking them up on it i've told you before we've been contacted by you know a major law firm greenberg traurig and you know a really awesome attorney that's working on the case of pierre rushing um this guy jordan grotzinger who's just a, he was a corporate attorney had nothing to do with this kind of work listen to the podcast He's a passionate, passionate advocate, um, and and he's going to get justice one of these days for Peter Rushing. We've we've tried to help apply pressure through this show by having people reach out to the DA, um, and and write letters on his behalf. And it's it's you know has it worked yet? It's working. 
we're going to get there at some point. Um, so, you know, that's my objective, you know, with, do, with continuing to do these stories. Because you're right. Um, the, the privatization of prisons and the industrial prison complex, that, is that a solvable problem? I'm no. not sure. I think it's. I, I think that it's too much of a giant to slay unless we start pulling the electrodes, not the Neuralink electrodes, pulling the electrodes out of the sockets and taking energy out of it as much as we can until they're like, well, we don't have any fucking or pe- sabot- people. You begin sabotaging pieces of the machine, right? Because, you know, a lot of these... Um, these these corporations are what you call well-oiled machines, right? And it's like a watch. When you open up a watch, you see so many intricate pieces, right? And and if and if you sometimes if you if you break the right piece in the watch, the whole mach- the whole watch ceases to 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 keep time. Um, and it's just you know it's just a poor excuse for it's like putting a bandaid on 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 a gunshot wound. You know, for 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 the government to allow these corporations to privatize and say, okay, okay, it's not our problem anymore. We're gonna pass the buck and and let somebody else deal with it. Now you have these corporations who they really don't they really don't care about you know rights and humanity and and cruel and unusual punishment and due process. They don't care about none of this stuff. Well, to allow it to exist in the first place. You have to ignore that people will be incentivized like every other industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, Mm -hmm. like the military industrial complex, like everything else. Once they start acting as a corporation, which Mm -hmm. all corporations, it is in their best interest to try to maximize the amount of profit they make always. If they have shareholders, it's their responsibility to those shareholders to maximize profits with each quarter. Now, when that happens with human beings in prisons, you can bet your fucking sweet ass they're going to lock as many people up as they can. That's a fact. And That's we know their for commodity. A fact, we That's know for a fact that happened. We know for a fact that prison guard unions, they, they, they work hard to make sure that laws are not changed that will incarcerate people for petty drug offenses. Big business. Big business. Big, big, like, uh, uh, for example, uh, I was supposed to go testify uh, at a congressional Senate hearing on— um, what they call slave wages, right? So you have this corporation um, called Corecraft. I don't know how familiar you are with Corecraft. Is that when they use prisoners? Yes. yes. They use prisoners. Uh, yes. In Auburn, they make license plates. In Clinton Correctional Facility, they make mattresses and T-shirts and underwear. Each facility I was just reading an things. article today about that. I was just reading an article today about food manufacturers mm-hmm. that use prisoners to sell commercial food. Yeah. And they, they, they essentially work as slaves. That's quick chill. So you have different, you have a whole bunch of different um, um, entities under this one large umbrella, right? And I remember I was getting paid 17 cents an hour at one point in time, 19 cents an hour. And, um, you know, for, for operating these big machines and they were producing just like a mass amount of, Corecraft is actually a Fortune 500 uh, corporation. And they function, they, 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 they regulate out of the prison industrial complex. There it is. U.S. prison is part of a hidden workforce linked to hundreds of popular food brands. Yeah. Fuck. 
frosted flakes, you know. So a lot of times we walk into the supermarket and we see these products and we don't realize, like, you know, what's going into, you know, making these products. Like you hear about these slave shops in China and all of this stuff and, you know, people campaign to say, oh, well, we're not going to support that. But what right. are you actually supporting here in your own country? Right. Un- right now. Unbeknownst to unbeknownst you. Unbeknownst to you, right? Yeah. And I mean, that if you have a label on everything you buy, like this may contain harmful s- substances, this may be bad for your health. Mm-hmm. GMOs. Why the fuck don't you have a label? This is made by prisoners. Mm-hmm. This is made by people making 13 cents an hour or whatever it is. Yeah. Why, how do you not have that? Because wouldn't that change the way people would buy things? Well, and and it, you know, the most important. Um, Look at this, including countries that okay. Uh, so the goods are prisoners produce wind up in the supply chains of a dizzying array of products found in most American kitchens, from frosted flake cereals, ballpark hot dogs to gold medal flour, Coca Cola, and Riceland rice. They are on the shelves of virtually every supermarket in the country, mm. including Kroger, Target, Aldi. And Whole Foods. Some goods are exported, including to countries that have had products blocked from entering the U.S. for using forced or prison labor. Wild. 13th Amendment. Yep. Exactly. Slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. And we go back to Jim Crow. That's what they did. Yes. When, right exactly. after the Emancipation Proclamation, post-antebellum, you know, they created this, this these laws to... Um, convict the freed slaves so that they can continue to force them into free labor, right? And yes. it just continues today, like 13th an hour, 17th an hour, 19th an hour. During the pandemic, uh, Great Meadows Correctional Facility had these guys working 24 hours a day making hand sanitizers in mass. That place is the scariest fucking place. That place traumatized that, me. That man. place is like... It was one of the first uh, prisons that I went to in New York State to visit with a potential client, and um, I almost peed down my leg. I mean, it looks like, feels like, is like what you saw in the Shawshank Redemption. It's worse than Attica. Hey, hey, check this out. What what you're seeing on the screen is not some new thing. You know, speaking of the Shawshank Redemption, Stephen King um, writes a lot uh, that is rooted. I'm not talking about Cujo. I'm not talking about, you know, his horror writing. His short stories, most of them are rooted in some sort of truth. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was a short story that he wrote that ended up getting made. I think it was part of Apt Pupil or one of his books of short stories. And you remember in the Shawshank Redemption where they had this precise thing where it was they came up with this idea. Uh, you know, the warden came up with an idea for a work program mm-hmm. where they were profiting. That that was true back then. He was basing that on something that was happening in the Northeast back then. So, you know, the notion that this is still happening um, shouldn't be that shocking. It's just like, what is what is our news cycle pay attention to? You know, and you know, and how do you how do you make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't keep happening? My idea is um, you need people on the ground that are working on policy and reform. So at the Perlmutter Center uh, for Legal Justice at Cardozo, we have a policy advisor. Her name is Sarah Chu, who knows forensics. She's a scientist and like one of the more respected, or in my mind, the most respected 
reform advocate about how we stop using junk science like bite marks and 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 um, you know blood splatter, but, well blood spatter, ballistics, even fingerprints to some extent. The conversation we and, was having earlier, yeah, and lobbying um, to make sure that laws get changed. And you know, it's like at the end of the day, the scariest part about all of this is that the politicians that we poke fun at, I poke fun at, everybody has a, a field day. These are the fucking people. These are the people that are sitting in some white fucking building the prosecutors at your state and, capitol. And the prosecutors are the worst. Man. And well, but before you get to the prosecutors, these are the people writing the laws. These are the people writing the statutes. They need to be influenced by people like Sarah Chu, other great people that work in policy and reform advocate. There's a woman named Rebecca Brown. Um, her and Sarah Chu both used to be at the Innocence Project. Sarah came to work with me. Rebecca Brown is a great one that are working boots on the ground and trying to change and educate, really. I mean, how much does um, your, your local representative or a state senator really know about how dangerous it could be to draw conclusions about um, the directionality of how blood hits drywall versus how it hits lucite, how um, bite marks leave an indentation on someone's skin. You could, I could, a qualified, certified, actually, strike qualified, a certified odontologist, totally total horseshit could take one of these skulls and make the same case that the bite marks left on someone's leg came from this set of teeth, Sheldon's teeth, your teeth, or my teeth, and convince four juries four times, 100% of the time. <laughs> that you're guilty. <laughs> that you're guilty. That you that A skilled odontologist could do that. So when, when bite marks were... Um, you know, became subject of a, of a report that everybody should read. The National Academy of Sciences did a report in 2009 that should have changed our criminal justice system. It had the most, the most qualified, certified scientists from all over the world study all of these disciplines of forensic um, evidence, all of these disciplines of forensic science, and come to the conclusions that none of them None of them were supported by scientifically uh, a scientifically credible body of evidence. They weren't. There was no repeatability. There was no reliability. The scientific method that you learn in grade school could you could apply it to any of them, and they would all fail the test. Which are the standards for admissions at trial? And it talks Still. about it talks Still. about the standards for admissions at trial, the Daubert standard, the Fry standard. It's just is it credible in the scientific community? And they come to a resounding no on everything except for DNA. And DNA is still fraught right now because there are all these new technologies. I shake your hand this morning and then I later pick up a knife and, you know, stab someone. And your DNA ends up on the knife. From the sweat because, on his hand. Yeah, because there is such sensitive, what they call low copy or touch DNA that can now be detective, that can now be detected. And the mixture can be untangled. And they can say, well, Joe Rogan's DNA is on the knife. Where was he at this time? There's a case of a guy named Emmanuel Fair in Seattle 
where he was implicated in a murder because he was at a party on Halloween when this girl got murdered. He ended up getting, um, you know, sitting in, in prison for, I think, seven or eight years before he finally got acquitted. So this report should have turned forensic science on its head and no one gives a fuck Bite mark evidence. Until it hits home. Well, bite mark evidence is still admissible in all 50 states. So, I mean, you know, look, we could sit, I could sit and bang my head against the wall about it. Or I could, you know, just keep on speaking up when you're in front of a judge. How often, Sheldon, do you hear from an attorney, well, I don't want to piss off the judge. All the time. You're right. Your, Your absolute obligation when you're defending someone is to is to piss off the judge if they're not doing their job, you it's know. To, to, to pe- protect their rights, their constitutional rights. That's what the that's what the Constitution was designed for. And it's so interesting when you think about the Constitution, right, and the founding fathers and, and the Bill of Rights and how it has just transferred over hundreds of years into today and how our rights are still. Uh, uh, fundamentally protected but you know when we talk about when we talk about rights there's two different worlds like you know his rights and my rights may be two different kinds of rights because of where we come from and because of the color of our skin unfortunately um ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and you and you constantly keep hitting on the fact that you know why do you wait for a problem to end up at your doorstep before you decide to do something about it you know, you have, like he said, you have people at all of these different organizations. Reach out. Google is is very effective. I've I've only been home nine months, and I've I've pretty much learned how to how to navigate Google pretty good, um, better than most. Um, and and I, you know, it's, it's 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 actually pretty easy to be able to find different organizations. Like he talks about the people at his organization, Sarah Chu, and um, we have Gina Mitchell at at Queens Defenders, who was our policy uh, coordinator. And we work on so many different subjects. Reach out. Reach out. Change is real, but it has to it has to begin somewhere. You have to just be willing to take a step forward. It doesn't matter where you're from, how old you are, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, black, white. It doesn't matter. You know, we, we, I, I, I look like I took a picture of a guy, a homeless guy on a train station a couple of days ago, and I posted it on my Instagram page. And, 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 and it just blows me away how, and I'm, and I'm just going to be straight up. I'm, I'm kind of, I have an issue with the whole immigration thing um, because I feel like, like he said, like Joe said earlier, like you have $70 million that you can give to a whole other country yet you know, you're not addressing the issues right here at home right now. Like, you know, I worked for Department of Homeless Shelters. Like, I've worked in there. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Like, and then you have citizens, you have veterans that come back from wars and can't even get the same services that people from other countries come here and get immediately. They get housing vouchers. They get education vouchers. Everything. Like, you know, make America great again. If you're going to make America great again, Focus on the people, the citizens, the people who put you in office. It's just, I don't know. It's like, you know. What does that even mean? Look, I've been reading, yeah, I've been reading this by? book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Have you heard? It's a fucking no. phenomenal. I, I highly recommend it. It's about how your brain works. 
and and why we believe what we believe and um the the two systems of our brain and one is um the quick judgment and the other is the slow it down and critically think about it and there are all these um you know puzzles in it where he makes the point by saying like consider the following and the studies that have been done on someone just repeating the same words over and over again and how that translates into people feeling that it's a credible and b that the person uttering the words has some credibility are are astounding just by keeping make them i mean Trump might be, in my opinion, a little nuts, but he's, you know, or a little crazy. He's crazy like a fox, though. He knows if he keeps on saying those words, those those words are going to stick. If he keeps saying witch hunt, people are going to start repeating it, and they do. So, you know, maybe um, think a little, like, I don't even know what it means. Um, I, I just know that we need to start, like, having some individual thought before we, it's just like, this group think about other people and you know how they're different and lock them up and throw away the key and you know i i just think like we should all slow down and really think yeah and what i what i hope to bring is is these stories where you get to know the person he's no I, I, look i'm deeply deeply flawed sheldon will be the first to tell you like i did some fucked up things but um, when you when you watch what he's doing, um, you know why can't why can't we make people in these communities? Um, why can't we make them great again by giving them a better chance? Um, like you said at the outset of the episode, let them hit the starting line. Yeah. Well, you know what you were saying earlier about building a sandcastle one grain of sand at a time. We're, I think, from my perspective, the feedback that I get, it's these conversations we've had. We've had quite a few of them now. They they have changed a lot of people's ideas on how the prison prison system is structured, what the problems with it are, how many people are wrongfully incarcerated, how incredible some of these people are, wasted potential, locked away forever for th- something never did, and they didn't break. Instead, they got stronger and wiser and more intelligent and more educated and came out better. And they're, they're, they're incredible human beings. And how many of them are just being wasted? Yeah, that's my— How much potential? I mean, this thing. is what you want, though, right? You don't want, you don't want somebody to go into the prison system and come out worse. Right, and which happens Which happens, most right? Of the time. And then we hear about these horrific incidences or people getting pushed onto the train tracks because you have a guy who has a mental illness and yeah. instead of getting the services that he needs, you put him in prison, you, you sedated him for three, four years, five years, you sent him to a parole board, the parole board let him out, two days later he pushes somebody into the train tracks, right? This is, this is not what you want. Yeah. So how, and, and how do you prevent these things from happening, right? By being proactive, by being responsive instead of being reactive. Don't wait for something to happen. But you said something that, uh, Joe said something that um, is worth sticking for, on for a second. These are, most of the time, these are the miracles that are coming out. Right. I mean, most of the time, you're right. The, the cycle of from the street to prison, back to the street to prison, 
most of the time recidivism yeah the yeah, yeah i mean i i'm just saying it in plain english most of the time it's churning out um monsters because what else would you expect right right i mean you ever, there's a great book um called in the belly of the beast about a guy that went to prison um and he describes what it did to him psychologically um what it did to him to to every um cell in his body um and then he goes out and he he murders um someone and he writes this book just explaining I want you to understand what this did to me I read it when I was in college um and uh I should read it again I probably have a different perspective on it now it might hit home even more but you know yeah these are the these are talk about grains of sand on a beach you know if you look at the the population of people that keep getting churned out of correctional institutions most of them are not getting corrected it takes you know why do i like to spend my time with these guys because i hope some of their strength rubs off on me somehow when i came home right in may it took me almost 30 days to get any type of benefits or help and I had to call this lady. I called this. I put in for the SNAP, the food stamps, the benefits, the little bit of benefits that I had, right, um, or that I could that I could possibly acquire to help me navigate and and, and kind of transition back and reintegrate back into society. And I had a conversation with a lady on the phone, and she told me, she said, "You don't qualify for emergency services." And I said, "What?" I said, "Miss, I just spent twenty five years." in five months incarcerated. If that is not a qualification, then what is? Oh, sir, I'm just telling you you don't qualify for it. I said, I need to speak to your supervisor. It took me two days to get to her supervisor, but when I finally got to her supervisor, her supervisor, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna look into it, and they finally gave me my benefits. But I'm saying all of that to say that there's, there's, there's these institutions in place that need to change. And for the people who are listening to this and you're directly involved in these institutions, there has to be a conscientious response to what classifies as an emergency. A person should not, I should not have had to wait 30 days. What if, what if I didn't have family resources? What if I didn't have anything? And how much does that incentivize you to go right back to crime? Right. You know what I'm saying? How much yeah. would that have incentivized me to go out and, and, and commit a robbery or steal a piece of pizza like a guy out in, in, in California where they have the three strikes laws and they end up giving this guy 20 years for stealing a slice of pizza because he's starving? This is, this is real stuff. This is stuff that's really happening. Nobody offered me anything. I had to actually go out. Do they give you any sort of guidelines of what you can do to reintegrate to society, or do they just release you? They just release you. They gave me $40 um, and a bus ticket. <laughs> and I had a little, uh, little J-Pay uh, uh, debit card because I had a couple of dollars in my account that they gave me with, with a little bit of extra money on it. They have some programs that you're supposed to... Um, be entitled to prior to release, um, but it's but it's a joke because the programs don't teach you any real skills, right? Like one of the one of the most one of the most significant hurdles I had upon 
my reintegration is was technology, right? I hadn't, I've never, I've never had a cell phone in my life. I sent out my first email in 2019 from a tablet that they gave me in Auburn Correctional Facility. I don't know what a a PDF. They, 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 I went online and they said I had to convert my application into a PDF before I could submit it. Excuse my language. I didn't know what a, a PDF. What the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. So these are some of the things that when we when we talk about uh, 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 opportunities, right, and leveling the playing field and, and and recidivism, right? Someone being able to get out and not have to be in these situations where they feel like the whole world is against them and they really don't know what to do. They can't get the services that they need. They don't know how to navigate the basics of technology. Uh, Microsoft, Excel, I was fortunate. I was in the computer program while I was incarcerated and I was able to, you know, as my role in the Cornell Prison Education Program, I put myself into a position to where I was... I, was, I knew what an Excel spreadsheet was. I knew what a Word document was. But a lot of these guys that's coming out, they don't know what that is. But you skipped the PDF course. Yeah, there's no PDF course. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, there's no PDF I don't even course. know how to convert something to a PDF. Yeah. Like, you it's know, pretty, so. Pretty simple. I'm sure, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I'm If saying. I saw that in an email, I'd be like, fuck. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's crazy? You know, there's a, there's a great program in New York called Hudson Link mm-hmm. um, where they – I think it's, it's a college program, and they do a lot of great reintegration. Um, they, they provide a lot of great reintegration services, and they're right like a few blocks from Sing Sing Prison. And – you were a part of Hudson Shout out Lake. to Hudson Lake. Yeah. Um, so I, I obtained my degree in mercy from Hudson Lake. Sean Pika uh, it runs the organization amongst many other formerly incarcerated individuals. Sean Pika is also formerly incarcerated. Um, they have a post-secondary education program on the inside, and they also have a post-secondary. They're actually paying for my master's right now to go back to school. They have a a housing reentry program called New Beginnings. Amazing. That's where I went when I first got released. But, you know, going back, had it not been for these these formerly incarcerated individuals, like I, I don't know where I would have been at. Had I had to depend on my my elected representatives, uh, you know, my elected assembly and senators, like I would be, you know, I, I would probably be trying to steal a loaf of bread out the grocery store. Um, you know what's crazy? There's um, this was a trippy moment, man. Fucking trippy moment. The warden at Sing Sing, a guy named Mike Capra. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, when you conjure up in your mind what a warden looks like, I mean, he's right out of Central Casting. Big burly dude. Um, you know. You looking at him, you think he's the boy. Watch out, you know he's doling out punishment. This guy was so inspired by what he saw at Sing Sing with formerly incarcerated with with formerly incarcerated individuals that got out and started programs. Um, J.J. Velasquez is uh, voices from within. voices from within started this this organization when he was incarcerated, where they bring people in the community into the prison, just to talk to inmates, and to establish that there's some humanity there. Capra 
the warden of Sing Sing prison. They call him the superintendent in New York. That's what they call wardens. Um, now works for JJ. He retired, and now he works for JJ going around trying to... He's like a, a missionary, but um, for the work we're doing. Frederick Douglass program. We were at the uh, UJC uh, a couple of months ago, United Justice Coalition. I don't know. Um, what was that the... No, that was the Jacob Javits. It was at the Javits Center. Yeah, at the Javits Center. He was there. He spoke. Uh, Derek spoke. Huge, huge event. But Michael Capra was there. I that know. was what I was saying. It was a trippy moment. I see him there. This guy was the warden of the prison. And now he's there at a booth <laughs> for JJ's organization. Speaking on behalf of incarcerated individuals. So, yeah, right. Did you talk to him? How did he make that? Oh, turn? did I talk to him? When I saw him, he told when Bruce got out. He came to Hudson Link. They have like a, it looks like a, um, like a thrift shop. And it, and it kind of is, but it's only for people getting out. So you could go in and get some clothes. Um, you could go get. That was of, Kiki's, Kiki Dunstan's. That was her thrift shop. She created that. So I, so when Bruce gets out, he had needed clothes. We said, we'll bring you some clothes. He said, no, Hudson Link has this great little spot by. So while, while he was still the warden, he came while Bruce was picking out things to congratulate him and, and wish him well. And I said, so yeah, I mean, I not only did I talk to him, is he told me when I retire, I'm going to come work with these guys. So yeah, when I saw him at this event called the United Justice Coalition, um, he's at a booth working for JJ on the Frederick Douglass side project. Side by side with us. And I saw him and he looked at me and he goes, I told you, Josh. <laughs> and I just walked up. I gave him a big hug. Wow. He like recoiled. I was like, come on, baby, hug me. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, came, he came in. He's like, man, it's like he go, he's like, it's life changing. You know, it really is. And, and we had a great talk about it. He was telling me how, you know, just being on the outside with these guys that I saw in, in you know, not only in prison uniforms, but in a construct that I was the head of, and now they're the ones inspiring me. We need more Mike speaking, Cappers. In speaking the world. of Michael Capper, right? So um, prior to my release, we, uh, me and Bruce, Bruce Bryant, uh, were working. So we created a number of programs. One of them was a civic engagement in New York, where we actually teach incarcerated individuals on their rights to vote how they vote, how do you go to a booth, how do you register to vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Michael Capra was pivotal in allowing us to be able to create these programs and have a platform in the school building. One of them in particular that we are trying to work on now is dyslexia, right? Um, and this might, this blew me away. And it may, and it, and it may, you may see, according to the Department of Correctional Education, 47% of the incarcerated population all across the United States have some type of dyslexia or reading disability, right? That's almost half of the individuals that are in the, the Department of Corrections that have um, some type of reading disability, right? So when you look at, and, and that's the tip of the iceberg, right? So when you look at the bottom of the iceberg, right, and you go and you delve even deeper into that, right, what are the key factors that played in this person actually you know what are the what's the correlation between incarceration and illiteracy right mm. and and there are there are currently no programs 
in any Department of Corrections throughout the United States that's actually screening men for dyslexia or to determine who can read and who can't read. So, so how do you... Wow. Oh, my God. However, a study of Texas prison inmates by the University of Texas Medical Branch estimated that approximately 80% of prisoners in a sample group struggled with their literacy skills and that half were likely to be dyslexic. So half of them dyslexic, 80% of them struggle to read. So, so when, we talk about, when we talk about recidivism and we talk about preparing someone to be reintegrated back into society, right, um, um, the Department of Corrections has failed. How can you say you're going to rehabilitate somebody? Reading, for me, right, I believe that reading is a fundamental right. My grandmother used to read to me when I was a kid. I would lay in her lap and she would read to me. And it wasn't even about what she read to me, but it was the connection that she and I had together and just being there with her. And, and, it, and, it, and it made me respect the idea of what it means to read, right? But when we talk about, like, going, going back to the PDF thing, right? A guy comes home and, and, and he's, he's supposed to go online and fill out an application, but he can't even read. How is he supposed to follow basic instructions during transportation and trying to get onto the train and 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 navigate through all of the basic uh, necessities in life, and he can't even read. This this is even there's an even more startling picture to that, right? What about due process? Hmm. Right. A guy's in a courtroom and a lawyer is giving him paperwork, hmm. and he can't even read. So there's 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 no system in place, um, and I think that that's something that needs to be that needs to be addressed. I want to get to what were the circumstances that got your sentence reduced, and how did oh, that come about? Okay, so um, I can't even count how many motions I filed throughout my incarceration. Four forty tens with this motion to vacate. Um, Rita Ericom Nobis, which is an appeal to a judge to the appellate division to overturn your appeal, your right to appeal. Um, I filed a, a, a motion called the Domestic Violence Justice Survivors Act, and I knew that the motion was going to get denied because I didn't qualify for the motion. For the motion, um, but my spirit told me to do it. My intuition told me just file it. Um, and I filed it. And in the process of filing that motion, that's when I met Allison Hart and Barbara Zoloff at the Center for Appellate Litigation. And they have what they call is the YEARS program, Youth Emergent Assisted Resentencing Program. And what they do is they look for individuals who meet a certain age bracket when they were sentenced, uh, a crime and then the sentence that's attached, usually disparaging sentences. And so um, the motion got denied, but in the process, I connected with Allison and they reached out to me and they said, hey, listen, um, we think you qualify for the program. We think you, you're the poster child for this program based on the circumstances. Um, and it, that began the process of my release. Um, I think what paid, what played a significant role was what I had done while I was in prison because that's one of the major things 
that the district attorney's office had looked at. That's one of the major things that Josh and Allison and everybody had brought to the attention of these people. Say, okay, you know, you have a guy who has these set of circumstances, but look at what he has done while he was incarcerated. Look what he has been able to accomplish. And he did all of this under the pretenses that he was never going to get out. Um, so we were going back and forth. We filed a bunch of paperwork. Um, we had to get a bunch of documents. I sent out a whole bunch of documents and they put together what they call is a mitigation packet. Um, and a mitigation packet just outlines everything, my circumstances, my sentence, my crime, um, accountability and a whole bunch of other factors. Um, and they submitted it. It was a 440-20 in New York State, which is a motion to resentence or a motion to vacate the sentence. Um, and initially, the ball was rolling. Um, the district attorney's office had initially conceded to the motion, saying we're not going to oppose the motion. Um, and then something happened. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but maybe Josh, he has more of a background insight and um at that time me and Bruce were working I didn't know Josh and Bruce said yo listen man I'm gonna talk to my man Josh Dubin he knows some people that know some people and and I didn't know that he was working with Derek Hamilton Derek Hamilton and I worked in the law library together so I think when he mentioned to Derek he said you know my nickname was superb that was a, that was my nickname in prison um and he said, oh, you know a guy named Superb? He said, yeah, I know Superb. So him and Derek got together along with Allison Harp and Barbara Zoloff. And they went to back to the district attorney's office in full force. They had all kind of me guys. Josh, you could probably No, I mean, too. I don't. <laughs> you know the details more than I do. Well, I mean, listen, I don't want to get too much into the details because I, I don't think they matter. And I think I want to make sure that the credit is given where it belongs, which is probably to Sheldon first for transforming his life um, and to Barbara and Allison, because these are two um, amazing attorneys that saw potential and and the injustice in what was done to Sheldon and who he had become. And they got to know him, uh, you know, and. I'm on the phone with Bruce, and these prison calls, if they're not a legal call, these prison calls are like, sometimes they just end real abruptly. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, I got to go by. You know, or, oh, they're, they're, they're giving me a hard time. They're doing a count now. I got to go by. Or sometimes it'll just click off. So Bruce is, you know, about to get out. He's got his clemency is granted. He had... He had um, gone to the parole board with a claim of innocence, which is f so rare, and got granted the parole pending his the reinvestigation of his case, but he has clemency with no strings attached other than being on probation until um, they make a final decision on his um, innocence. And um, he's on the phone with me going, yo, yo, you got to... I got this guy, Sheldon Johnson, right here, and he wants to talk to you. He's, his, his lawyer knows your cousin. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is this guy talking about? And I was like, Bruce, man, I got to worry about getting you out. And this was going on for like a, a full month. And 
you know, he's right here, he's right here, he wants to talk to you. I said, I'm not talking to anyone else. I'm, I'm dealing with your case, I gotta get you out. He's like, please talk to Allison, she's been at your house before. <laughs> I said, no, you got something, you got your lines crossed somewhere. So I finally, like, paid attention to it. I had a million other cases going on, and Bruce was our first client at the Perlmutter Center, and we were, like, you know, really lining things up for his release. And I, I speak to Sheldon's lawyer, and she said, you know, I'm actually friends with your cousin, and when um, she organized the baby shower for your first, um, for your daughter, who's my oldest, Lila, she said, I was at your house for your baby shower. I remember your wife, Jillian, real well. <laughs> She's like, tells me, I remember your house. And, I, and I'm like, this, come on, you can't make this shit up. You the know? connections, The man. connection. And uh, I mean, in New York City, it was just too wild. Right. So I said, send me, send me um, the mitigation submission. And that was when I read about Sheldon and I... Uh, went to Derek Hamilton, who is a one-man cyclone of justice. You know, he's been on the show. He's just, he is doing, he, he just does so much for so many people. He's like, I know him. He's an amazing guy. We gotta, we're going to get him out. So right in the middle of, um, it, it's, there's so many Trump things where there's cameras all yeah, outside Trump that I forget. To show I, up in court I forget what it was. Pushing it back, they said, "Oh, it's too much going on." In what the was it? What was it though? It was him being indicted, or no, it was him being indicted, and then they were saying that it was too much police activity there. That they just kept trying. They just kept pushing it back. So they what happened was there was back. like we we were at the district attorney's office on a different case that we're working on, and we asked to speak to the district attorney. Um, of New York and let him know that we were now representing Sheldon along with the Center for Appellate Litigation and made a, a passionate plea on Sheldon's behalf. And you know, I don't want to go too much into the details, but we were ended up, um, you know, kudos to the Manhattan District Attorney's Absolutely. Office Thank for you. for actually, you know, paying attention and um, and seeing that Sheldon was worthy of a second chance and really the that the the sentence did not fit the crime um and the, the twist on sheldon's story that i i it's like a head scratcher to me that i asked him about was the judge that sentenced him as a as a black man and you know i said to sheldon did that ever strike you as um i mean here's a, a african-american judge that looks at this young um, young black kid and should understand his circumstances and have a better understanding of it and not want to throw away his life. Uh, and I said, so what, what do you do with that fact? Um, and Sheldon, Sheldon said, well, I'll let you respond to it because he said something to me that I didn't really, I mean, this judge now, you know, sits as a federal judge in the Southern District of New York. Um, I, I, um, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. I, I, it just seems so uh, strange to me that that is who, you know, said this guy's not worthy of redemption. Um, one of the things that I expressed to Josh when we had this conversation was that just in my, just in my experiences dealing with... Uh, judges and 
prosecutors and correctional officers in particular who are black, right? They struggle with this idea that they feel that they have to be harder on their own people, for one, to make an example, and so that their colleagues don't think that they're being weak Mm. or showing favoritism because, oh, this guy is black, so you're showing him favoritism. Um, But the idea of, like, what Josh is saying, like, you would think that someone who's in this position as a judge, he's an arbitrator, right? He is supposed to be someone who is in a position of power and authority, should be able to look down... And I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe he saw something. I don't know what his experiences was. I I, I can't speak to that. Um, You know, maybe he saw me as as a menace, you know. Um, But I I do honestly believe that, you know, we, we need these people to be able to look at things from an objective, right? Because when you, when, when, as a person of color, and in a position of power, like a lot of times it's, it's a subjective reality. It's a reality that's attached to uh, personal feelings and experiences. And a person who's in that position should be in a position to, to be more objective, right? When we talk about objectivity. And I think that's what it boils down to, you know, subjectivity versus objectivity, right? Um, I think what you're talking about too is expressed by I know a lot of guys that have been uh, that have had dealings with black cops uh, black guys having dealings with black cops and they will tell you man they will go out of their way oftentimes to show that they're not showing any favoritism yeah Mm. like they have to show because they're a minority in their precinct Mm -hmm. and they they go out of the way to show that they fit in with that culture Mm. And so, 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 you know, and, 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 you know, showing just to speak to what he said, right? Like when I was in upstate New York, uh, Auburn and, and, and Clinton and, and Attica, you, you had a sprinkle of maybe one or two black cops. Mm-hmm. Um, and the black cops were always the worst. Right. Because like he just said, you know, they are a minority and they don't want to be ostracized by their coworkers or made to seem as if they're showing favoritism towards the prisoners. So they go out of their way to just be extra. That's what we used to say. He's just being extra. He wants to enforce all of the rules. What a white cop might say, ah, this guy got a pot and an eye. So, you know, in prison, you know, we have, like, you know, you have pots, guys cook, and you have an eye. It's usually, like, a coil that's detached from a hot pot, and you use it to make food. Um, There's been times when, you know, you'll have a a white cop that'll come in the cell, and it's contraband. You're not supposed to have it, but you'll have a white cop that'll come in the cell, and he'll see a pot, and he'll just be like, he's just using that to cook. Then you have a black cop that'll come and be like, no, he can't have that, you know, and it's... And it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just interesting. Um, and I think it goes, and I think it goes back even farther than that, right? When you go back all the way into slavery, you know, you had um, hmm. the house nigga and the field nigga. Excuse my language for using those words, right? You but, could use them, we can't. Yeah, right. You know That's, what I'm saying? And that the idea of the person, the guy who was in the house, he was harder on his own people, his fellow slaves, than 
some of the some of the overseers may have been or the slave masters. So it's this this transferred psychological state where you know a person feels like they have to just go above and beyond to like like Joe just said to show that oh I'm not showing favoritism. Yeah. Or I'm not speaking, you know, this whole uh, talking white. God, it's such a fucked up system. It's crazy. It's so fucked up. And every time we have one of these conversations, I, I leave and I just drive and I think when I'm driving home, I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, the just the sea of human beings that are entrapped in this system. And what is the number of incarcerated individuals in the United States right now? Two million. So that's more than the population of Austin. It's actually 1.92. We rounded off as 2 million. Roughly Austin and the surrounding areas. So interesting that I was looking at Austin, right? Texas. Texas taxpayers pay $3.5 million in taxes towards prisons. $3.5 million. How much of that could be saved if it's invested? I mean, it would be a, a fascinating study if one state would implement what we're talking about, like community outreach programs starting at a, a grassroots level. How much money would be saved by the state so, by investing that money? So, for example, right, um, uh, on the 17th of this month, we went to, I told you we went to the rally, treatment, not jails, right? So the idea of the treatment, not jails, is to have a diversion court that deals with substance abuse and give the judges the discretion to send people who clearly have substance abuse issues into a program as opposed to incarceration, right? And for every dollar that is spent in this program, you save $2.21. I mean, there are studies we could go through, uh, you know, incarceration in the federal prisons and the state prisons, um, and, and at the risk of sounding like stat machines, you obviously see Sheldon is very well-versed. I am as well. But the point is, is uh, the short answer is we would save a ton of money um, and be able to invest in people and things to make people happy, not sad, um, to en- engage in enjoyment, not suffering. So Productivity, not dependence. Wouldn't it just take one governor to implement something like this that would show that there's a benefit financially for the state. But look who they're beholden to. You mentioned it earlier. Then they have to worry about how will that impact my electability, Mm -hmm. right? Because are the corrections officers union, the police union, are they going to get behind me in the next election? You know, it takes, I think when you take a step back from a governor, like we have a guy um, who is the DA in Brooklyn, his name is um, District Attorney Gonzalez. And you know, we have an amazing relationship with him. The Perlmutter Center, um, Derek Hamilton especially, where we're able to go to him and his and the people that work with him and say, look, and we have a client right now that's in prison for, I think, 30 years on a 30-year sentence for a $6 robbery at a, at a drug house. And the diversion programs, the drug diversion programs that are available now weren't available back then. He's 69 years old. So, you know, we're really hoping, I think we're very close to the finish line of getting him released. So, um, you know, I think that the short answer is, yeah, it would take a governor to implement a program to be able to um, point funds in the right direction. And I, 
Fam, you talked about just one second. You talked about HBCUs. FAMU in Florida, um, the only land-grant HBCU in the state, is the disparity in funding of that school versus other schools in the state is is um, not a matter of, you know, it's it's a matter of fact. I was recently arguing on behalf of these students um, that just want um, to be funded the same way Florida State, University of Florida, and all the other public universities are. Like two weeks before my argument on the state's motion to dismiss, the United States government, the United States Department of Education sent a letter to the governor in Florida and said, here are the statistics. Now, this is all traceable to what they call de jure segregation. Um, there, there was the you know, and and please fund the school appropriately. Well, the judge just dismissed the case a few days ago, and I would I would invite people to go online and read the decision, because we're going to appeal it to the Eleventh Circuit in Atlanta. But it wasn't it wasn't a it's not a matter of of um, there's no controversy. There's no argument that no, we are funding it appropriately. FAMU was founded on a slave plantation, um, a former slave plantation. And, you know, when I brought that up at the oral argument, the judge went nuts on me. Mm. What? No, you're saying it's a slave plant. No, I'm saying that's where it started. And if you take a thread and pull it forward through time, the United States Office of Civil Rights in the 1970s, in the 1990s, went to the state of Florida and said, you are not funding FAMU appropriately. And they entered into these consent decrees with them where they had to do what's called destroy vestiges of de jure segregation. Because since Brown versus Board of Education, there was another Supreme Court decision called Fortis, which talked about how do you establish that a pattern or practice is traceable to segregation. And the state of Florida just has ignored it. Um, so does Governor DeSantis have the ability to make sure that FAMU is funded appropriately? Or is Governor DeSantis going to worry more about Florida State University being um, somehow shortchanged in the national championship and and earmark funds to to challenge the college football folks to make sure? I mean, are you fucking kidding me? I went to Florida State. I think it's fucking, it's lunacy. So the answer to your question is yes, but he's not going to do it for whatever political reasons he has. Why not fund the school so that there is um, some, you know, a level playing field, you know. And it's a controversial subject amongst ignorant voters. And and it's 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 a a controversial subject amongst ignorant voters because all— all um, Governor DeSantis has to say is he took a page out of Trump's book because he knows it works. Is all he has to say is woke, 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 woke. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means different things to different people. All I'm saying is look at the statistics and you cannot come to any conclusion but that FAMU, the only HBCU that is a land-grant institution in Florida, meaning that they were granted land— 
is is funded disproportionate to any other college in the state. And there is no reason for it other than that it is a vestige of segregation. And, and you know, really the state has the burden to say, no, there is a justified reason for it under the law. I'm just giving it to you in plain English. They don't put anything forth. Um, I mean, I had the judge asking me questions in the oral argument on the motion to dismiss questions like this. Well, well, couldn't couldn't it be that Florida State University had better a better boosters club and that they were able to raise more money? And I said, you're absolutely right. You're making my argument for me when you are struggling to make sure that the uh, microscopes work in your science labs which one of my clients will tell you is the case, and you have dilapidated buildings, are you worrying about starting a, a, a fundraising organization and boosters? Well, couldn't they have gone and lobbied the legislator? Yeah, they could have. Who was running the legislator in Florida? Um, you know, and so when you start to run into arguments like that, the writing's sort of on the wall, and we have to wor- we have to now take it up with the, you know, the 11th Circuit in Atlanta, and try to get that decision overturned. This was on a motion to dismiss where the standard is just, I have to take all of the facts that the plaintiffs are alleging as true and assume them to be true at this stage. So it's, you know, the the, pro, the point is the problem would not exist if the governor just said, you know what, I just got these statistics from the Department of Education. Let's just fund FAMU proportionate to how we fund every other school and they just don't and what they fall back on is well you know there's merit-based funding I mean start peeling the layers of that so you look at the the graduation rates you look at other metrics I mean I think quantifiable yeah I think you see the flaw there right Um, so yeah it's it can get frustrating at times and what you know like what I have a choice now. Do I fold up the tent? No, you go to the Court of Appeals and you make your case and you just keep on fighting and trying to get it right. So so, so to, to piggyback off of what you just said, right, you know, um, when you say, it, can the governor do these things, right? Yes, they can. A lot of times these, these objectives are long-term um, and it takes time to quantify them. So when we speak about quantifying like these, these examples of what are the circumstances surrounding the lacking of funding? Um, a lot of times these governors are more concerned about whether or not this is going to come out during an election year and, and people are going to, you know, whether liberals or, or conservatives are going to go against them and vote against them because they supported uh, education of incarcerated individuals. Um, I remember when I was going to Auburn, um, and I was in the Cornell Prison Education Program. This was in 2014. You had correctional officers, families outside the facility protesting as the volunteers were coming into prison with signs saying, does my kid have to get convicted in order to get a free education? And the idea was that we were receiving a free education because we were incarcerated, which is not the case. The idea is that education has been proven to prevent recidivism. Individuals who have been shown to acquire associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees are like 90 
one ninety two percent less likely to return back to prison. Mm. So 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 this is quantifiable uh, uh, evidence of of how you take money and you allocate it into one uh, uh, project. So over the long run, you can save money. Yeah, I like. So it what, can be done. Would you yeah, leave? The, the, respo- the response to that is not stop prisoners from being educated. It's like make it easier for everybody. Exactly. That's the that's the response. I mean, I th- I think the easy answer though to your question of why I don't focus my attention on governors is I st- uh, like. Am I leaving this in people like Bill Clinton's hands when he was the governor of Arkansas? (laughs) That fucking guy? Am I leaving it in the hands of Andrew Cuomo? Right. That fucking guy? I mean, that guy wouldn't. That guy wouldn't answer a fucking letter. uh, Wouldn't return. You know, his clemency um, program was to not have a clemency program. Mm. So he was too busy hugging people. He was too busy, yeah, rubbing shoulders or whatever the fuck. Stealing, stealing fields. <laughs> oh my bad. I ain't mean. You know, I was just. No, you know, that's just your opinion. Me. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that the time, energy, and resources are better spent. I think the private sector comes up with better solutions oftentimes at helping. Like, watch how what do they call it? The virtuous cycle. The virtuous cycle works like this. When I saw the work that Allison Hopped and Barbara Zoloff were doing at the Center for Appellate Litigation. I said, this is, this is like, you know, God's work. This is like beautiful stuff they're doing. And they're on a shoestring budget. So rather than be like, you know, the civil rights community can be interesting. It brings out the best and the worst mm-hmm. in people. A lot of these civil rights organizations, you know, again, you throw human beings into any endeavor together, they're going to fuck it up. They like to argue and get like, um, I mean... Egos. Egos, and look what happened to me by coming on the show, and uh, the the I would some folks tried to censor me, um, and mm. I just wouldn't have it. So I saw the work that they were doing, and I said, you know what? Do you do you need help? And they said, we need help. We need we have to do these mitigation reports, and we have to hire people, like in Sheldon's case, to assess him, a clinical psychologist, a social worker, whatever it is. And we don't have the money to get the reports done. And there's just two of us. So the Perlmutter Center is providing them with the money to do those reports. Um, Steve Zeidman at CUNY is like, he's this guy that I think that he's responsible single-handedly for over 50 clemencies in the state of New York. Amazing. Phenomenal guy. He's coming, actually, he's coming to Queens Defenders to do a... um, we're getting ready to start a, a clemency initiative at Queens Defenders. He's coming to train a bunch of guys. He's just this at guy. Yeah, he's that doesn't surprise me. He's a guy that just he's a letter writing machine, and he keeps the pressure on, and he just doesn't give up on people. And you know he needs help, and we're looking for ways to collaborate. So we said, well, what what is it that moves the needle? to these clemency units at governor's offices because the governor's not paying attention. They've had, right. They have a battery of people that listen to these cases and what they do are videos. He does these really great videos that are like a day in the life and to, show, and to sort of um, humanize the client so they're not just on paper and pictures and they go and interview them and um, have them talk about what it would mean to be free and how they've changed themselves. So he needed a little bit of help to get these videos produced. So we've agreed to donate some funds there. Um, and I think it just like 
having this this um, more synergistic approach rather than have it be about me um, or put my name on the door. Let me get the credit. Right. You know, we just all pitch in. Yeah. To wrap this up, um, if someone's listening to this and they want to reach out, they want to help, they want to contribute. Maybe somebody does want to. Some Jeff Bezos type character does want to get involved and and see if there is something that they could do in terms of like some sort of a community outreach center or something that can help. What can they do? Who could, who can they reach out to? They can go to the Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice at Cardozo Law. It's it's at, like Sheldon can Google. Anyone can Google it. Um, there it is right there. Yeah, there it is. Um, and I think Googling it would be faster. If you scroll down to the bottom of it, um, you'll find the donate button. You know, there are ways, and there's some of my students, um, there's a give now button. We put it all the way to the bottom. Um, but in any event, we, um, you can reach out to me at joshua.dubin at, y, at yu.edu. That's my email for the the um, Perlmutter Center, and, um, you know, we're we're on the precipice of a major announcement with uh, one of the most prestigious law firms in the country in a couple of weeks that has agreed to not donate just financial resources but woman and manpower to help litigate these cases. Um, that came as a result of the exposure that we're getting here. So... Um, as I always do, I thank you from deep within my soul for allowing us to have this platform and, you know, the commitment that you made to doing this quarterly and telling these stories. I'm very thoughtful in who I bring on. Um, I think this was one of the best ones yet. It was. Um, they've all been and, amazing. Um, I just love. I love the fact that that Sheldon was able to tell his story, and this was a different version of, um, I think, an important element of the story that needs to be told. So, my my deep respect and love for for you. And my same to you. You know, I think what you do is extraordinary. It's it's so admirable. It's so important, and it it, it sets an example to so many people that there's there's great work that can be done and real good. And Sheldon, thank you very much for being here, man. Thank you. And th thank you for the example that you set and all you've done to, to to educate people and to just to set an example with your own life that there's a way out of this. And 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 um, you can also find us at queensdefenders.org. Um, there's also uh, my email address is sjohnson at queensdefenders.org. You can reach out to us. We're also on a precipice of an amazing announcement working with Columbia University, their Youth Justice Ambassador Program, and coordinating with uh, professors and volunteers from Columbia to work with our Youth Emergent Leadership Program. And, um, you know, we can use all of the help that we can get. Well, I'm sure you're going to get some. People are listening. All right. <laughs> Thank, you, Thank you, Thank you Thank very you, much. Thank you, I appreciate you having me here, man. It's an honor. Appreciate you being It's an honor to have you on. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. All right. Bye, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Look, it's important to take care of yourself, and it's equally important that you use the right products like Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural soaps and more with no harmful ingredients. 
so you can look and smell your best. Try their pine tar bar soap and lotion, bay rum deodorant, or woodland pine cologne. Most of their scents are available across multiple products, so if you really like it, you can get a whole lineup. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash jre or use the code jre at checkout. 